inspiration in perspective. Express yourself. Good morning, my neighbors. City FM, your station. It's a refreshing lifestyle. City FM, 97.3. of your favorite weekend current affairs and political show, The Big Issue. My name is Godfred Akutobuafo. It's always good to spend the first few hours of your Saturday mornings uh, with me and also I with you. Uh, on the topic, on the table today are two things dominated the headlines all week. Parliament and the digitization of the economy. And that is what today we'll be trying to break down. Parliament because as a, uh, a parliamentarian, Francis Xavier Susu, has split opinion on what parliamentary privilege means. Minority and the majority seem to have different opinions. The speaker seems to have a different opinion. The police seem to have a different opinion, which has led to a criminal summons being uh, issued towards the uh, member of parliament. He's supposed to appear before a court on Monday uh, to answer uh, certain charges. And uh, if the we are to take note of the charges um, he will appear he has been uh, charged by the police with two things uh, let me just get that for you uh, destruction of uh, obs sorry obstruction and then destruction of public property uh, plus another charge we'll try and break down what all these uh, charges mean and then also we'll spend some time on the economy and the digitization of the economy. The Vice President, Dr. Mahmoud Baumia, uh, delivered an almost 40-minute speech at the Ashesi University on uh, the government's plan for digitizing the economy, what they have done so far, what they plan to do. Catching the eye, of course, is the incoming e-passport, also e-pharmacies being outlined, uh, upgrading of NIA cards, quite a lot happening. Um, in the space of digitization. We'll see whether it is worth the cost to the economy, whether it is even being done properly. There are those who have raised decisions and said, yes, fantastic idea, but there's a problem with the execution. There is even perhaps a problem with the ideation. We'll deal with this and more over the next three hours on The Big Issue. Keep listening. Everything must change. 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 Everything must
As you know, it's an interactive show, and you can reach us via our WhatsApp lines if you are listening to us on City 973. Uh, also, for those of you who watch us on City TV, you can reach us via 0549 and 0550-585-5832. 0550-585-5832. Let me just go over those lines again. 0549-986-996-0550-585-832. Just a quick thing I've noticed. Uh, quite a few of you send us messages that are off-topic. Um, please do keep your messages on-topic. Uh, for us so that we can read them. A lot of times we get messages that do not have anything to do with what we are discussing, even though they are big issues as well. So please uh, be considerate with us a bit and send us messages that are on topic. Uh, for those of you who prefer Twitter as well, at City973 is the Twitter handle at East Sportsman or Gofredakutubuafo also. That is my personal handle. Use the hashtag the big issue and I will gladly read your comments. Uh, also on YouTube, if you do miss out, uh, search for CityTube, C-I-T-I-T-U-B-E, that is our YouTube channel. You go there, you subscribe, and you can catch playback. And for those of you who prefer Facebook as well, uh, you can go to our pages, uh, City973 and CityTV Ghana. Uh, we are streaming live as well, so you can just catch up with us there and leave your comments in the uh, comments section, and we will get to it for you. I hope that covers that, and we can begin the conversation with uh, Francis Xavier Susu and Parliament. So uh, we do know that on Monday the Ghana Police Service formally filed charges against the Member of Parliament in court following uh, his involvement in a demonstration organized uh, in protest of bad roads in this constituency. Now the charges include causing damage to public property and obstructing uh, the highway. Uh, we'll just uh, play a bit of a report on this matter, which actually started from Sunday when the Ghana Police Service were at uh, a church in his constituency where the Member of Parliament was believed to be worshipping at. The, uh, the whispers at that time whether the police had gone there to arrest him but the police later came out to say they had nothing to do with that officially and that if there were any policemen uh, on ground then it means they were carrying out intelligence uh, gathering on the matter so we will try and capture just everything that has gone on and then we will come to the first of the matter which is in parliament where there seems to be a tango over what parliamentary privileges are when it comes to a member of parliament. There are those who say that there are right processes or procedures for inviting a member of parliament or arresting a member of parliament have not been followed by the Ghana Police Service in this particular matter and that the law must be respected and enforced. And then there are those who also say that, look, this is what the law has always been. This is what the Ghana Police Service has always done. We've had statements from the majority and the minority. I'll read those as well. Uh, a statement from the Speaker of Parliament. And there have been critics of uh, the Speaker's position on this matter as well. So we will enter into all this uh, after we hear the various sides of the issue. So we will listen to a bit of a report on that will wrap up uh, the issues. We'll hear from the Speaker of Parliament and then we will hear from the majority and the minority. So I'll come back and give you a bit more detail in what the statements that the two uh, sides of Parliament have put together. And then we'll have an, uh, a good discussion about what uh, 
the, the state of parliament now what its powers are because don't forget also we have the parliament versus general legal council issue where the parliament has defended its right to give out certain instructions to the general legal council and explain why they feel they are in a position to give uh, those instructions to the general legal council although quite a few people also disagree with that so today parliament will be sharply uh, in focus on the first part of the show let's listen to our reports when we return the analysis will begin the first attempt to arrest a member of parliament for Medina, Francis Xavier Susu, was during a protest on October 25 by residents of Oyarifa and its environs where the legislator narrowly escaped the police. Last Sunday, the police was alleged to have tried to initiate an arrest while the MP was in church. Francis Xavier Susu again escaped the arrest after he was whisked away by the minority chief who had Muntaka Mubarak. However, the police denied attempts to arrest the MP at the church but disclosed it will pursue the MP to have him answer questions about the alleged illegality during the protest. Parliament Theory Speaker Alban Babin has on two occasions described the purported arrest as illegal, with the latest being Wednesday's release. In the said statement, Parliament intimated that although the immunity of MPs was not absolute, the legislator could not be hounded in a way that was unconstitutional as it threatened the country's democracy. In reacting to the matter, the acting Director General for the Public Affairs Department of the Ghana Police Service, ACP Kusifuri, said the embattled MP is expected in court on October 8 after a criminal summons was secured by the security service. The latest is that the police have obtained criminal summons and have been duly served for him to appear in court on the 8th of November. What are the... As we enumerated. Um, of certain public highway causing damage among other things. The, the, the invitation has officially not come to the attention of the administration. But it may and, and, when, and when that comes, the administration may take a firm decision. On the sidelines, the Inspector General of Police, COP Dr. George Dampare, met with selected civil society organizations as part of ways to strengthen cohesion and engender confidence. I think generally Guardians are happy with the new wave of policing that we are seeing which um, has been initiated specifically by the new IGP but he made it a point that the successes he's chalked so far are because of the support he has from people like um, Chief here whose communication clearly has been very useful and the other top brass in the police. We've urged them to continue to do their work especially to make sure that um, there is no discrimination in policing in Ghana. I would believe that policing will be better if the general populace believes that anybody, anybody, no matter where the person's standard is in this country, is arrestable. Practically, nothing is happening. Go to Kolebu, you seek you and do the paperwork. They have to bring your patient folder. So what is he talking about? Go to DVLA, you seek your passport of you, you seek you. So even people who are filling online passports, look at the hassle we have to go through before even getting their passport. Sometimes you have to spend the moment before your passport, you can, you can even get your passport. The interface, reducing the personal interface to reduce corruption, 
through digitization. For me, that is the key thing that he stressed yesterday. Because everything that people talk about, corruption, corruption, if you don't get close to me, when you are transacting any business, there's no way you can ask that I put something on, uh, uh, on, on the table or in the envelope and that kind of thing. Because you sit in the comfort of your home and you do everything. Earlier on Thursday, the majority caucus released a statement questioning the speaker's troubled handling of the Francis Xavier Sosu case. On the floor of the House, the Deputy Minority Chief Ahmed Ibrahim raised concerns about the statement released by the minority. I got here only to be given another press release, which seems to be pouring fire on the already existing fire. Your Speaker, we are already in opposition. We are ever ready to support our brothers on the other side. We hold the peace together. Rather, if they are in power or you in government, when we are ready to support you, you are not ready for the support. We have agreement. Let's hold on the fire until Speaker comes. And rather, the Speaker himself is being attacked now. The Speaker, how can we hold these pieces together? The Deputy Majority Leader Alexander Penyomarkin responded to the issues raised by the Deputy Minority Chief of Ahmed Ibrahim. I was taken aback when Sosu's matter got out of hand. He's been a very respected friend and we engaged each other and we were trying to direct him on a certain part that will not get everybody in. But be that as it may, what is out there is out there. I believe the essence of uh, Honorable uh, Ahmed's uh, position is for us to keep calm and avoid further getting the matter out of hand. So that was uh, the report of what has happened so far regarding this matter. Let me just uh, go in detail to the statements that has come so far. So I'll just go through the majority caucus's statement and then I will also go through the st press statement by the minority leadership on this matter and then we'll come in studio and try and figure out what exactly the law is and why this particular matter has become so contentious and if indeed it should be uh, contentious. So let's look at the majority caucus's statement first and this came on uh, november 4 2021 and it reads it's quite short the majority leadership in parliament knows with extreme concern the refusal of the speaker of parliament right honorable albaneske backbone to release the member of parliament for Madina, honorable francis xavier susu to the ghana police service to assist with investigations into alleged offenses committed during a recent demonstration in his constituency in a later dated uh, in a letter dated 27 october 2021 the ghana police service officially identified honorable susu as a person of interest and therefore requested the speaker to release him to assist with investigations however in a response dated 28 october 2021 the speaker said quote proceedings of the third meeting of the first session of the eighth parliament commenced on tuesday 26th october 2021 and having regards to the limitations of article 117 and 118 of the 1992 constitution of the republic he is unable to release the member of parliament as requested end quote 
the majority leadership views the foregoing response by Speaker Bagbin as a troubling departure, let's take note of this part, as a troubling departure from how his predecessors handled such requests to avoid doubt when both Right Honourables Joyce Bamford Addo and Edward Do Ajaho received those requests during their days in office, they responded by inviting the relevant MPs, held discussions with them, and then asked them to report to the requesting police or investigative authorities. Again, during his tenure as Speaker, Ranch Honorable Professor Michael Quill modified the arrangement, including making the Speaker's conference room available to the police to meet with MPs they were interested in and to conduct initial investigations. He did this to protect the dignity of MPs while at the same time ensuring that MPs are not put above the law. At all those times, Anabu Babin, as he then was, had been part of the leadership of the House. Now, this, now the Speaker of Ghana's Parliament, Right Honorable Babin, appears to be instituting new rules that seem to undermine the rule of law without any prior discussions with the leadership of the, ask, uh, of the House. We ask, what exactly has changed? As a group, the majority believes firmly that constitutionally guaranteed immunities for MPs in our democracy must not only be protected always, but jealously guarded as well. However, never should we as Parliament make the mistake of allowing immunity to be construed to mean impunity. We take a firm view that in the particular case under reference, Parliament, as the law-making arm of our democracy, has a constitutional, legal and moral duty to cooperate and collaborate with the police to ensure that the rule of law prevails. Further, Parliament must not be seen to be creating a false regime of two separate laws in Ghana, one for MPs and another for non-MPs. Instead, Parliament must ensure the equality of all citizens, including MPs, before the law. That is the end of their statement. Then, there is the one from the minority, which is quite long, uh, but I will try and read the salient points quickly, and then we will uh, begin the conversation. This is signed by Mr. Haruna Idrisu, who is the minority leader. Uh, his also came on the same day, uh, November 4. So they were busy, both sides of parliament very busy on the same day. So the minority leadership knows with great consternation and disappointment the press statements by the majority leadership. The minority considers the press statements as an attempt to undermine the authority of the right honorable speaker Alban Suman Akinsford Bagbin and weaken the institution of parliament. We are a country governed by law. And we, the minority, will always uphold the cardinal principles of natural justice guaranteed under the Constitution. We will continue to uphold and respect those democratic values and ethos. They then go on to lay down what they call the bare facts. And then go on to say, the majority leadership is being mischievous and disingenuous by ignoring the fact that the police refuse to comply with the established protocols of dealing with matters affecting MPs by not first of all contacting the speaker who would have then made the necessary arrangements for them to meet with the affected MP. The majority leadership has lost its way for abandoning the truth and the facts of this Francis Xavier Sosu matter. The right speaker of the 8th Parliament of the 4th Republic of Ghana has not changed any rule. The request of the police service for release of MPs who have complaints against lodged against them at the police service are invited to the office of the Speaker. After listening to them, the Speaker will then inform them of the decision to release them to the police service for investigation. The Speaker will then convey his decision to the investigators and remind them of the practice established by his predecessors of conducting, of the, of conducting the investigations in the conference room of the Speaker in the presence of their lawyers. 
The MPs are informed of the date to appear and attend the investigations and to attend the and to answer the inquiries of the investigators and the MPs comply. This is the practice. In the case of Honorable Francis Xavier Susu, the police service neither invited him directly nor through the right honorable speaker. The police personnel went to his constituency where he was performing his duties as an MP in the company of police officers lawfully detailed by the regional police service to provide guidance and protection for him and the possession of youth in the Medina constituency against the sorry state of rules in the constituency to arrest him. He was then addressing the constituents. In such a situation, the constituents would do everything to protect their MP. His personal bodyguard, lawfully assigned to him by the parliament police protection unit and division of the Ghana police service managed to drive the MP out of danger and to safety. The Honorable Susu then became a wanted man by the police. It is on record that the speaker contacted the MP who confirmed the story. Convinced that this conduct of the police constituted, con constituted contempt of parliament, the MP drew the attention of parliament at a plenary sitting to the breach. By the, sitting, by the standing orders of parliament, the speaker has the discretion to either refer or decline reference to the Privileges Committee. The facts and evidence adduced by the MP in the complaint raised serious concerns that merit investigation by the Parliamentary Committee. The Speaker therefore referred the complaint to the Committee for investigation and report to the House. It is the House that will decide whether the conduct as investigated constituted contempt of Parliament or not. It is not the Speaker who will take that decision, and this is public record. As to complaints by the majority leadership of the Speaker not consulting the leaders on such matters, the law on instructions from suspects to a lawyer or a person in a similar role are privileged information. The minority is therefore of the firm belief that the Speaker was not convinced that this is, these are information subject to disclosure to third parties. While we believe that the Speaker is open to better knowledge and advice on this matter, we are sure the Speaker doubts the legal validity of the opinion of the majority leadership in this matter, who totally disagree with saying. The issuance of this press statement by the majority caucus leadership is unwarranted for two reasons. Firstly, they are aware that the Speaker and the leaders are not in the country. And secondly, a criminal summons has already been issued, and as such, the police should follow the laid-down procedures as per Article 117 and 118. The rule of law is not about selective justice. The rule of law abhors persecution and selective prosecution. What the minority despise is the fact that, the only, that only minority MPs are wrong and are being persecuted. The minority has no intention to undermine the very laws that has ensured the stability of our society and sustained our democracy. We therefore wish to remind the majority that they cannot continue to connive with the executive to use the security agencies to abuse some sections of Ghanaians, including non-MPP MPs, under the cloak of rule of law. We are inviting the whole country to see how the majority leadership, in conjunction with the executive, want to undermine the forward march of our democracy, and we call on all Ghanaians to resist this creeping dictatorship in our body politic. What wrong has the right honorable speaker done in the whole matter? On 29th October 2021, the Right Honourable Speaker directed the Deputy Director of Legal Services of Parliament to inform the police that he was unable to release the Honourable Member from Adina, but added that, quote, it is the expectation of the Right Honourable Speaker that the Ghana Police Service will conduct its investigations mindful of the provisions of Article 117, 118 and 122. Consequently, the Parliamentary Service of Ghana in a press release dated 3rd November 2021 by the Deputy Clerk reiterated the position of the Right Honourable Speaker and noted that, quote, members of Parliament are not about the law. The issue is not that a member of Parliament cannot be investigated or arrested. The issue is the procedure to follow to investigate or arrest a member of Parliament. 
The Right Honorable Speaker further added that, quote, the police service requires the support of everyone to conduct their affairs and that support to be granted provided their services are within the boundaries of the law and rules established by the provisions of the 1992 constitution and other laws governing democracy and all civilized societies as we have indicated the minority always uphold the rule of law the honorable member of Madina, the honorable member for madina will subject himself to the appropriate lawful authorities when those agencies follow due process we shall not be called into servitude by persons who claim and chat rule of law encourage and encourage and champion the power of arrest by police only when the person of interest is a member of the opposition let us all be guided by the provisions in order 30 of the standing orders of parliament and articles 117 118 and 122 of the 1992 constitution the majority should not pick and choose the provisions of the constitution and other laws of the country and then just wraps up signed harry nidrisu honorable minority leader november 4. so uh i've taken a bit of time just to go through um, these two uh, sides of the matter and then we can now delve into the analysis itself and I'll be doing this uh, this morning with uh, the Member of Parliament for Boku Central who will join us via Zoom, the Honorable Mahama Yaga. Honorable Yaga, good morning. Honorable Yaga, if you can unmute your good morning. microphone. Ah, there you good are. morning. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you for joining us. Also, I hope it's. I hope it's a beautiful drive. Oh <laughs> uh, well, I'm in Boku. Um, I'm heading to the funeral service. So okay, I'm within time. All right, no problem. Then Honorable Alexander Aban. Uh, uh, well, he's Mr. Aban now. Uh, former member of Parliament for Kumwa West. Uh, a lawyer. Thank, thank you for the correction. As we must use. The title is properly. Title properly in the house. Yes. Thank you very much as well. So he is uh, Mr. Aban now, uh, a, a legal practitioner. Franklin Kujo is president of Imani Africa. And also Dr. Rashid Draman, executive secretary, African Parliamentary Service, also joins us via Zoom. Good morning, Dr. Draman. Good morning. All right. A pleasure to have you on the big issue. So let me begin the conversation from the man on the road, uh, Honorable Mahama Ayariga. This seems to be a matter of procedure. What exactly have the police service done wrong in this matter? Uh, I, I, I don't know, but in the first place, the constitution and the, the law is quite clear. And it simply says that you cannot serve a process on a member of parliament on his way to parliament, on his way from parliament, or when he is attending at parliament, or any proceeding of, of parliament. So the basic question is whether the, 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 the police were uh, serving a process on on, on the member of parliament, if he was on his way to parliament, or he was on his way from parliament, or he was uh, uh, attending at parliament. So those were the, the, the issues. And um, I think that for anyone to be able to fault the police, we must show that they attempted to serve the process when the person was on his way to parliament, was attending at parliament or was on his way back from parliament, or was attending any proceeding 
as parliament. If you're able to show that they attempted to serve uh, a member of parliament or arrest a member of parliament uh, at any of these times, then you will be able to forge the police. But if you cannot establish that this is it, then it will be difficult to, to say that the police was uh, wrong. So I think that flowing from the, 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 the principles stated, we can also assess the, the position of uh, the police in writing to the speaker to release a member of parliament for them to either interrogate or assist them in investigations. There again, I have taken a position in the past, and I still maintain my position, that the immunity granted to the member of parliament is personal to the member of parliament. So the speaker cannot waive the immunity of a member of parliament uh, for the purposes of the police to do anything with the member of parliament. The speaker cannot. So if the speaker wrote to the police uh, based on the understanding that constitutionally he cannot waive the immunity of a member of parliament, it is the member of parliament that may decide voluntarily to surrender himself at any of these times. And I'm speaking about when you are on your way to parliament, when you are attending at parliament, and when you are on your way back from parliament. I take a position that the speaker cannot waive your immunity during any of these periods for the purposes of being served as someone or being arrested or any other thing. That's my position on the matter. So if the speaker's letter to the police is based on this understanding, then I think that the speaker took the right constitutional view of the matter. Now, the issue about speaker making arrangements for parliamentarians to meet with the police, which is what the majority side are saying is the established understanding. Mm -hmm. I will say that that is an understanding that MPs have willingly subjected themselves to, not because by law they can be compelled by a speaker to meet with the police at a time when parliament is sitting. The speaker cannot. But the MPs have historically subjected themselves to that because we don't want to put an impression to the public that we are above the law. So if the police are looking at looking for us for anything and we have notice of it and they don't go trying to, you know, uh, be macho and exercising, you know, you know, power nakedly and wanting to embarrass a member of parliament uh, in the presence of his constituents, but you know, approach it with some uh, respect and dignity. Very often, the uh, parliamentarians will make themselves available, and also, like uh, the majority stated in their statement, during the time of Michael Cray, he would even insist that the police should come to parliament, and I have been subjected to that before, so I'm, I'm speaking from experience, and, and, and they will come to parliament, and then you will meet them in the speaker's office. He will create room for you. You will be sitting in there. He will just create the space. And then the police will come. The CID will come. If you have a lawyer, you come along with your lawyer. And they will ask you all the questions they want to ask you, as they will do in an interrogation room at the police headquarters. And then for the end of it, they think they want a statement from you. They will ask for a statement. And you will write a statement for them uh, in the presence of your lawyer or guided by your lawyer. So that is also a practice that we have used not because constitutionally we are obliged to, but because we don't want to create an impression that we are above the law and therefore cannot be held to account for our, our conduct. 
But that again, let me emphasize, is not in keeping with the constitution. Because as so far as the constitution is concerned, once you are at parliament, once you are on your way to parliament, once you are on your way back from parliament, during that period, you enjoy what I consider as absolute immunity that cannot be waived by anybody, not even the speaker. That's my position on the matter. Mm, that, that's quite interesting. Let's, let me begin my uh, breakdown of this with you on the interpretation of parliamentary duty. That's something a member of parliament can stretch. Uh, can't The law is not very clear on that. The law is very clear on what is parliamentary duty. You see, parliamentary duty is a function of practice. We have our mm. uh, uh, order of the day that shows what business we are we have conducted. And so the order paper will tell you whether parliament was sitting or not. And the order paper also tell you whether a committee of parliament was sitting or not. And whether a committee of parliament was on a mission or not. So, for instance, I'm a member of the ECOWAS parliament. If I've been invited by ECOWAS parliament to Abuja, on my way to Abuja, I'm still carrying out parliamentary duties. On my way back from Abuja, I'm still carrying out parliamentary duties. If the education committee of parliament decides to go on a tour of uh, abandoned senior high school projects, on their way to the abandoned senior high school project site, they are on parliamentary duties. On their way back, they are on parliamentary duties. Same with health committee deciding to go around and then, you know, assess the situation of hospitals. And if the committee is sitting in Koforidua and it is advertised on the order paper that the committee is going to Koforidua for a committee sitting to work on a bill that has been referred to them. Even though Koforidua is no parliament, while they are on their way to Koforidua, they are, they, are, they are attending to a proceeding of parliament. So that is it. But then when you are even in doubt as to whether or not parliament is sitting and whether parliamentary proceedings are taking place, the constitution says that you write to the speaker and the speaker's certification that there is a, a, a parliamentary duty or parliament is in session or proceedings of parliament are taking place, that is, is, is enough evidence that indeed parliament was sitting or that there was proceedings of parliament uh, taking place. So the certificate of the speaker is conclusive evidence that there was, you know, parliamentary proceedings taking place. So that is not in doubt. And, and I don't think that that is a complicated matter. And MP can make all sort of wild claims. But there's a very easy way of establishing that the MP is carrying out parliamentary duties or not. And that is a certificate from the speaker. And then also, the speaker certificate can also be, 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 be questioned if, if, if it is really groundless and he is just trying to cover for a member of parliament. I'm sure in court, the, the courts will have the final say as to what constitutes proceedings of parliament. The constitution says that any proceedings of parliament. So the courts will determine whether, in fact, if you were uh, serving the summons at your girlfriend's house, <laughs> Uh, whether you can say that that was a uh, proceedings of uh, <laughs> even the speaker sends a certificate even the speaker sends a certificate that yes he was attending proceedings of parliament the police can bring the evidence and in court the judge will determine whether indeed uh, whether the speaker was acting in accordance with the constitution himself in certifying that somebody who was served summons at his girlfriend's residence was actually you know attending a proceedings of uh, parliament so those are those are 
matters of fact, and I don't think that they are difficult to establish. So if Sassou makes a claim, now there are two things. One, the police can write to the speaker asking whether on that Monday, whether there was any proceedings of parliament that Sassou was attending. And then the 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 the, 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 the speaker will write and certify. And then also um if if they they doubt it, they can go for the order paper and then the record of proceedings of the house for that day and the hands up and to see whether indeed parliament was sitting, whether a committee of parliament was sitting, whether there was any activity that resembles proceedings of parliament that the member of parliament could claim to have been on his way to on that day. I, I don't believe that, and this is my honest personal view, I don't believe that being in your constituency and carrying out your normal responsibilities as a member of parliament mm -hmm. constitutes constitutes proceedings of of parliament. It may be a member of parliament carrying out his or her legitimate functions, but we cannot stretch. In my personal opinion, and, and I'm not the final authority on this matter, but in my personal opinion, uh, there, there has to be limits to what constitutes proceedings of parliament, uh, and it has to be proceedings of parliament. It doesn't say a member of parliament in the performance of his duties. Now, when it comes to uh, breach of privileges, breach of privileges says that you cannot hinder parliament or member of parliament in the performance of his duties. So then we can stretch the ambit of the definition of, of, of privileges to cover even when you are not in the building, parliament. But when it comes to the service of someone's effecting arrest and etc., the constitution, in my opinion, is quite clear and limited in terms of the, the immunities that it, it gives. But like uh, has been said, because MPs and Parliament and Speaker and leadership, they don't want to create an impression that you know we are above the law and etc. We always make arrangements for the MPs to show up at the police station or for the police to come to Parliament. Those are arrangements that we have made ourselves. But strictly speaking, that is not what the Constitution provides for. Let's talk about this breach of privileges and dealing with an MP in the performance of his duties. I guess that is where the crux of the matter will also lie. Because, for instance, you are on your way to a funeral as we speak. That is performance of your duty, right? There is nothing in the constitution that says that my job includes uh, attending funerals. So it's, it's, it's just the social relations that an MP necessarily needs to cultivate to enhance his or her political standing uh, in his community. And, and, and everybody attends funerals. So we cannot choose to protect members of parliament simply because they, they are attending funerals. But when I finish, and I'm now driving from Boku to Accra, with a view that Monday I can, you know, attend, you know, uh, a Tuesday I can attend a uh, sitting of parliament. I can make a claim from here to Accra that I was actually on my way to Accra so that I can attend parliament. So if you serve me with someone so you stop me to arrest me, you are impeding me in my ability to be in Accra and to attend uh, the sitting of parliament. But you see, when I get to Accra today, mm -hmm. And I'm in a car between today and then, let's say, tomorrow, Sunday, and Monday when Parliament is not sitting. It will be overstretching 
the constitution for me to say that was roaming in Accra two days, two clear days before the sitting of parliament, that um, immune from service of summons or processes simply because on Tuesday I'll be attending parliament. But Tuesday morning, from early morning till 10 o'clock when parliament sits, I can make a claim that I was preparing to go to parliament, I was on my way to parliament when you stopped me at this begun and tried to serve uh, summons on me. So the point I'm making is that really it's a question of fact that needs to be established and, and, and people looking at the facts can make some reasonable assumptions that yes, okay, if he's in Boku and then he has to attend parliament in Accra, he necessarily has to drive from Boku to Accra. Mm -hmm. But if he arrives in Accra two clear days before the sitting of parliament, he cannot tell us that for those two clear days that he is only in Accra, that he is on his way to parliament. Because he has arrived in Accra. So between Maraba in Accra and Tuesday morning, honestly, I personally think that I cannot make a claim that I'm on my way to, 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 to Parliament. Hmm. I, I guess then you'll understand the concerns of those who criticize the level of wiggle room a parliamentarian is afforded then when it comes to matters of arrest in this regard then yeah i understand but then also it is not for nothing that that uh, arrangement is there in the constitution let me give you a very simplistic example which we are confronted with today we have 137 and then we have 137 members of parliament the absence of one member of parliament at a time when there's a critical vote is very crucial to decision making in this in this parliament. Now, assuming that uh, the police are looking for an MPP member of parliament, and then they can't find him, uh, and then on a Tuesday there's a crucial vote in parliament, and we all know that whatever we like it or not, the truth of the matter is that honourable right honourable speaker Adam Bagwin is formerly a member of the NPP, uh, sorry, the NBC, and the leader of the NBC in, in Parliament, and etc. So, uh, let's stretch it, but in order to weaken the, the NPP side, he decides to waive the immunity of a member of Parliament so that the police can come to Parliament and then pick that person up. And then the person loses out on the vote in Parliament. I mean, that clearly is what the Constitution is seeking to prevent. That is why I take a position that the Speaker cannot waive the immunity of a member of Parliament because if he does so, he can use it to, 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 to prevent a parliamentarian from voting, especially if the parliamentarian is not on his side of the political uh, divide. So the Speaker should not have that, that, that power because that is, that is a position I took in relation to my opinion that he couldn't waive my immunity because in my case, the, 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 the special prosecutor couldn't get me to serve his summons. And so he took the summons to Parliament House and I gave it to the speaker to serve on me. And I said, the speaker cannot serve a summons on me. If he serves a summons on me, it is invalid because he cannot waive my immunity when I've come to Parliament and I serve me a summons so that I can attend uh, court. They will have to look for me and find me outside uh, the period of parliamentary 
duties, uh, and then serve me with, with, with a summons. And it's a position that I take and, 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 and hold strongly because it is founded on the, the position of the, the committee. And, you know, people may have issues with parliamentarians, but they may become parliamentarians one day, and it's, 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 it's a protection that is given to members of parliament, not me as Mahama, but the office of a member of, of, of parliament. And, and I believe that, you know, different people enjoy different levels of immunity. For instance, a diplomat, you know, working at an embassy of, let's say, Togo in Ghana, enjoys all those immunities. Even if he, he commits a crime, you cannot, you know, arrest and prosecute him, you know, because he enjoys diplomatic uh, immunity. So, uh, if we will respect that in relation to a clerk in a, in a uh, foreign you know, service of another country uh, in an embassy in your country, why do you have an issue if the same you know, levels of uh, protection or even a minimum level of protection is given to your parliamentarians to be able to perform those functions? You know, those who are in parliament today, I'm not sure you know, one, one 1% of us were there when the constitution of Ghana was being drafted. So it is not we those in parliament today who drafted the constitution and conferred the immunity on us, ourselves. No. We came and made the constitution and we got elected into offices created by the constitution. And that constitution says that whilst you are occupying this office during this period, you enjoy this immunity. As we speak, President Akufado enjoys immunity from any form of civil or criminal prosecution. So if President Akufado slaps me in public, all I can do is say, you wait and see. When you step out of office after three years, I will sue you for, 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 for X, Y, Z. But for now, I can do nothing about it. You know? The same way, even if, you know, he commits uh, some civil thought, you can't, you can't sue him for, 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 for it. Because the Constitution confers uh, immunity on the president from both criminal and civil, not when he's on his way to work or on his way back, which is all that parliamentarians enjoy. But forever, I mean, whether he's sleeping or he... we, see, we seem to be having a bit of a problem with uh, Anwar Ayari. I guess we wanted to uh, finish up with him. That's why I'm giving him this uh, amount of time because he's on the road on his way to uh, a function. Yeah. Yes, Anwar Ayari, please finish up. Yes. Yeah, so basically, that's my conclusion that they may have issues, but it's not it's not the parliamentarians who designed the constitution. It is, it is Ghanaians who wrote the constitution and parliamentarians are carrying out their functions under the constitution and are entitled to the protection that the constitution gives. So if people have issues with that, well, then maybe they should begin to think about how we can amend the constitution. All right. Thank you, Anabla Ayariga, for those opening comments. Then we come to Dr. Rashid Rahman, who is the Executive Secretary of the African Parliamentary Service. Dr. Rahman, I'm sure you've been listening to Anabla Ayariga. The question I guess we need to ask ourselves is, there's this mix of convention that has become standard practice that and then there's also the written aspects of the law which in the estimation of a lot of people seems to give parliamentarians a lot of wiggle room this matter of performance of his duty parliamentary duty when to interpret it when to stretch it and when so that they can comply with the law what are your thoughts are you with those who say perhaps we might need to take another look at it or the law is just fine but it is just the usual politicking between the mpp and the ndc that has brought this to the fore again 
Well, thank you very much, Godfrey. Uh, uh, um, first of all, let me say um, our centre is not a parliamentary service. It's the African Centre Parliamentary Affairs. Affairs, so, sorry. Uh, sorry. Sorry, sorry, yes. sorry. Yes, thank you very much, sir. Yeah. Um, I think um, 117118 uh, of our constitution, first of all, should not be read uh, in isolation. I think we also have to look at other relevant provisions in the in the standing orders. So, for instance, order 30 uh, of our standing orders um, is, is relevant here. But my first point is that 117118, I think we need some clarity because Honorable uh, Mama is very clear in terms of uh, what the, the provision, I mean, those uh, um, articles of our constitution say. But I mean, there are so many people in this republic who are not clear about this, including uh, some of his colleagues, um, members of parliament. So that is, that is my first point. My second point, I think, is that um, I seem to have a little bit of disagreement with Honorable Mayaga when, uh, in his definition of parliamentary uh, proceedings. I, mean, I know uh, some might say it's a bit of a stretch, but in the work that we do, um, one of the weakest links um, in the three functions that members of parliament perform, I think, is, is that of representation. Um, Representation can partly be done in the House, but representation can also be partly be done um, within the constituency. So there are those who would say, what honorable, what the honorable member was involved in, in his constituency, uh, was performing uh, a parliamentary function of representing his people. So that is, that is another angle, but that would need to be proved in court, and that would also be need, I mean, would need to be uh, proved by um, the, right, the right honorable speaker. Now, let me come to um, maybe the, 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 I mean, the key issue that we're discussing here, which is a disagreement between the majority and the minority. Um, Honorable Mamayarga has indicated he uh, has been uh, a beneficiary of uh, what has been, uh, if you like, an arrangement that is not backed by the Constitution. And I know that uh, many other members of Parliament, I mean, some of his colleagues have been beneficiaries of, uh, of this arrangement. In this particular instance, I think the issue is perhaps the, the sequence of events. Um, in maybe in his case, uh, his issue with the special prosecutor, as well as maybe in the case of uh, um, his other colleagues. I mean, there was no uh, developing event where the police uh, tried to arrest any of them. Um, I think that that is where there is the, the disagreement between uh, um, the, 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 the right honorable speaker and, and the majority in terms of uh, the claim that there's a departure from uh, from I mean, precedent and from practice. Because in this particular case, if you look at the sequence of events, um, the police were on the ground in the constituency during the demonstration. They tried to arrest the honorable member. 
then uh, that couldn't happen. And then he came to Parliament, made a report to the Right Honourable Speaker, and said his rights were being violated, and so on and so forth. And then the Right Honourable Speaker referred the matter to the Privileges Committee. And so then after that, there was, uh, uh, if you like, uh, communication from the police, and so on and so forth. So I think that that is where um, there is a difference between what has happened in the past and what is uh, currently happening in this particular case. I mean, having said all these, I think it's very important, it's very important that, you know, we uh, make sure that at least, uh, at the very least, we see some unity uh, between the, the majority and the minority. I mean, not to break any law and not to say uh, the particular MP is above the law. But when we begin seeing disagreements uh, to, you know, um, indicate party positions and so on, um, either from the NDC or the MPP, I think it doesn't portend very well for the kind of unity that we need uh, for the very important issues that are before uh, our um, our members members of uh, of of parliament. Um, um, Godfrey, I want to also say that uh, going back to my initial initial submission mm. about the fact we need to take a second look at uh, 1171118. Um, even the countries from which we borrow these uh, privileges and immunities, I mean, from England and uh, from uh, some of the established Commonwealth parliaments, over the years, I think they've had um, cause to take a step back and ask the question whether the, the kind of provisions as they have them are really relevant to modern parliamentary practice and so on. And in, in instances where such questions have been asked, I think uh, the Westminster uh, Parliament, the Parliament of Australia, uh, and even to some extent um, the House of Commons in Canada, members have had to say, look, I mean, we have gotten to a point where uh, we need to take a second look at some of these uh, provisions because uh, they are not in tandem with, uh, you know, modern uh, democratic practice as we, 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 I mean, we have them. Honorable Mama Yanga has indicated that these uh, provisions were crafted by, I mean, the citizens of this country, and that was about 30 uh, plus years ago. Um, the question is, uh, do these provisions as we have them uh, still meet um, you know the, the spirit and the thinking at the time or do they need to be to be revised and in my uh, very honest opinion I think uh, um, we need to take a second look seriously at some of these provisions both I think in the uh, in articles 117 uh, 118 as well as in um, if you like order uh, 30 uh, and so on and so forth what would be the objective of taking another look at the 117 and 118 and order 30 as you so see it um, for those who hold the position that this is just perhaps a matter of the lack of trust as well that exists between political divide 
and the Ghana Police Service and the fact that the governing side is always prone to manipulating the police side to their advantage and that distinct lack of trust is what leads to finding fault with perhaps rules that could be clear-cut like 117 and 118 and other 30. Well, uh, Godfrey, so for instance, we hear from Honorable Mamma that he has been a beneficiary of some arrangement between the Parliament of Ghana and the police or other uh, kind of arms of, uh, of, of government. Uh, now, that is not part of 117-118. That is just a special arrangement to ensure harmony and to ensure uh, kind of a good working relationship uh, between Parliament and other uh, bodies within the Republic. Um, we need some clarity on this, whether this is actually uh, permitted and whether this, this can be allowed to go on. Uh, because this is one of the things that is causing all this uh, misunderstanding, uh, particularly maybe coming from the, the, uh, I mean the, the position of the majority saying that the right honorable speaker is departing from from established uh, practice established practice which is i believe not constitutional because uh, again as i said if you go to 117118 it just simply says on the way during and after parliament now um honorable sosu uh, when they went to the church to go and look for him, as uh, I mean, Honorable Mama Erga himself had said, I mean, if you are in your girlfriend's house uh, or if you are roaming in Accra uh, before a parliamentary proceeding and the police come after you, I mean, it would be a stretch for somebody to say uh, Article 117118 apply. But I think in all this, we need. Uh, some clarity, some pronouncement from uh, the, the court, or maybe uh, as a country, we need to sit down clearly and look at um, under these provisions what is allowed. If we want to insert some of these other arrangements, I think um, uh, that those are some of the things that could bring uh, some clarity uh, to to this uh, to this matter. Thank you very much, Dr. Rashid Rahman. Uh, he's the executive secretary of the African uh, Parliament uh, Center for Af uh, African Parliamentary Affairs. So uh, we have cleared that up here, shared his thoughts. I will come in studio and speak to Mr. Alexander Ban and also Franklin Kujo, president of Humani Africa, is still with us on this matter. Don't forget that the component of the GLC also as well. Parliament is looking to assert itself. But before we get to hearing from Mr. Aban and Franklin Kujo, We'll take a break and then when we return, we will go there. Why don't you get away from here? Hey, Charlie Taylor, 
Parliament this week uh, in the eye of the storm uh, over two matters the appearance of a member of parliament, the member of parliament for Medina Francis Xavier Sosi is supposed to appear in court on Monday and the processes that have led to that there's a dispute over parliamentary privilege and what it means and what it actually is and then uh, we've heard so far from the member of parliament for Boko Central Mayaga heard from Dr. Rashid Rahman, Executive Secretary of the African Parliamentary Centre uh, for African Parliamentary Affairs. And then uh, Franklin Kujo is yet to speak, but we are going to hear from Mr. Alexander Abba, who's a former member of Parliament himself for Gomorrah West. You can also be heard, 0549986996, That's our WhatsApp line. And 0550 So, Mr. Abba, I'm sure you've heard from your former colleague in Parliament, uh, Mahama Yaga. You've heard from Dr. Rashid Raman, who's done a lot of work on what you do in Parliament. What is your take on what has happened this week? I see a play of convention and also uh, a bit of party sides at play here. 117118 is quite clear on what needs to be done. Thank you. Good morning to you. Good morning to our cherished viewers. Um, uh, let me uh, extend my condolences to my friend, uh, Pedersen, whose mother will be buried today at Latte. Mm. Um, having said that, mm. let me precede my comments with a profound statement made by the Supreme Court through Justice Sowa, CG at that time, uh, on 23rd September 1980, in the famous case of Tufour versus Attorney General. Mm. And that would be my guiding principle in discussing this matter. Okay. He says, and I quote, A written constitution such as ours is not an ordinary act of parliament. It embodies the will of a people. It also knows their history. Account, therefore, needs to be taken of it as a landmark in the people's search for progress. It contains within it their aspirations and their hopes for a better and fuller life. The Constitution has its letter of the law. Equally, the Constitution has its spirit. It is the fountainhead for the authority which each of the three arms of government possesses and exercises. It's a source of strength. It's a source of power. The executive, the legislature, and the judiciary are created by the Constitution. Their authority is derived from the Constitution. Their sustenance is derived from the Constitution. Its methods of alteration are specified. In our peculiar circumstances, these methods require the involvement of the whole body politic of Ghana. Its language, therefore, 
this where my emphasis is. Mm -hmm. Its language, therefore, must be considered as if it were a living organism capable of growth and development. And indeed, it is a living organism capable of growth and development, as the body politic of Ghana itself is capable of growth and development. A broad and liberal spirit is required for its interpretation. It does not admit of a narrow interpretation. A doctrinaire approach to interpretation would not do. We must take account of its principles and bring that consideration to bear in bringing it into conformity with the needs of the time. Okay. Having said this, let us try to see what would have been the animation of the uh, proponents of these two uh, provisions in the Constitution, Article 117 mm -hmm. and Article 118. You realize that Parliament would be a toast of mockery, if I should put it that way. Mm -hmm. If an MP who has been given an assignment, for instance, to discharge in Parliament, is not heard from, I mean, and uh, he, he doesn't appear in Parliament to exercise the function, only for Parliament to be told that, oh, on his way here, he was arrested by the police. And that's why he has not been able to attend at Parliament to discharge his function. You would see how Parliament, Parliament would be embarrassed in a situation like this. And so, to my humble mind, this provision is there only as a shield to protect our democracy and not as a sword in the hand of Parliament itself for, I mean, to embark on self-destruction. Mm. And so, if we are interpreting these provisions, we must do so having regard to all other provisions in the Constitution, especially Article 17, which says that we are all equal before the law, and there should be no discrimination on the basis of creed and for, for our emphasis, societal status. Mm. Until okay. you become president or MP. Societal status, including uh, being MP, being president. Mm. Because even in the case of president, with all the insulations, as soon as he leaves, within three years, we can sue him for whatever infractions that you think he may have caused personally to you. And if what he has done in the exercise of his office is soon to be unconstitutional, even though it may not affect him personally, you can still take the Attorney General to court to reverse or disapprove whatever the President is alleged to have done. And so it's not as though there is absolute immunity. And that immunity should not proceed to, or should not uh, graduate to get to a point of impunity. My point here is that uh, probably if the majority leadership mm -hmm. had conferred with the minority leadership to come to a common position 
as how to resolve this matter, probably the partisanship, which is now creeping into it, would not have arisen. But did they need to? The rules are clear. Yes, but the thing is that, you know the way we play our politics. But, but then that is the problem. Should this be a matter of party consensus building and uh, of parliamentary consensus building? No, Should this not be one of those moments where the, being, the law says A, B, C, D? Because, because one part thinks that it is because they are not in government that this is being done to them. That's the whole thing. So my concerns over trust then come into play. Right. But you see, I think that um, Mr. Speaker probably is the cause of all this confusion. Why? I'm going to explain. Explain. Because he has taken, with all due respect to him, some mechanical approach to the interpretation of Article 117 and 118. But let me now put it alongside the scenarios created by my friend uh, Mahama Ayaga. He's my very good friend. Mm -hmm. And I respect him. You see, he created his own story. And I'm going to tell you. His story is that on his way from Accra going to Boko, he may not, looking at Article 117, he may not be seen to be attending or going to Parliament. Right? So, Article 117, 118 may not kick in if something should happen on his way. But when he is done and he is on his way from Boku back to Accra, mm -hmm. he could pray in aid Article 117 should any attempt be made to arrest him. Mm. That's, uh, that is the interpretation of uh, that's exactly what he said. That on his way coming. Then when he has got to Accra and he is roaming about two clear days before Parliament, he cannot be seen to be claiming these immunities or these mm. uh, uh, privileges under Article One One Seven. Yes. How do you expect the Speaker to give a certificate for that? Good. How do you expect that? In the same journey from Boku to Accra, that journey should be seen as though you are moving to Accra for purposes of attending Parliament. But when you get to your destination in Accra, between the point of your destination or the time of your destination and the real time for parliamentary work on Tuesday, that immunity should not apply. And that's why, that's why I quoted this. It appears that there is confusion as to the interpretation that should be put on Article 117. We are stretching it too, too, too far. And that is why probably uh, in the democracies that we borrowed this from, they are also uh, sitting back to see that, look, uh, in this modern times, should we still have this? Now, let me create scenario using my friend's journey. No, but not, not just that. Let's stay with this a bit. But is, is it not also, um, is all this not born out of where the police started this from? Member of Parliament of Medina attending a protest. Something happens and there is an attempt, and that was clear because we were there. There is an attempt to arrest the Member of Parliament during the protest. Where would that fall? Good. 
if you look at even our criminal procedure act even citizens mm -hmm. can effect arrests mm -hmm. if they see that somebody is committing a crime mm -hmm. or they have reasonable suspicion that the person is about to commit a crime mm -hmm. even they i do not know exactly what happened which got the police to attempt to effect an arrest but if i should use the scenario that i wanted to create on his way towards boku god forbid suppose somebody drives so recklessly and he runs into his car it is reasonably conceivable that he would go to the nearest police station to make a complaint against that errant driver mm -hmm. reasonably conceivable in much the same way if he was the one who drove recklessly and let's say uh, had a brush with somebody's car the person goes to make a, a complaint then you tell the police you know what go and tell the speaker before he alerts me and then i'll come right mm. let us also look at the situation where ordinarily in those days when such a complaint suppose he even uh, goes on that tangent that look i'm not coming you can't serve me with any uh, criminal process or you can't even serve me with any civil process so go and do so through the speaker in those days probably the speaker will just call him and say that this is what we have received get it and i'm saying that that whole procedure is not to make the mps untouchables but to make sure that the sanctity of that house is uh, guarded and that's why i gave a scenario or i gave an example that suppose an mp is supposed to i mean uh, uh, discharge some assignment in the house and before you realize the mp doesn't appear the next moment you hear that oh he didn't appear because he was arrested on the way it will create some confusion and that is why for the sanctity of the house for the respect we have of, uh, uh, for the house you will let the mp come and do his work mm -hmm. pass it through the speaker so that the speaker being aware may not even give him any assignment to discharge and then the speaker would also know that on so and so date the person is supposed to uh, appear before the police but hold on the, there again yes uh, permit me but then Mahamaya raises then the interesting point of is it the speaker's place to even waive the privilege or immunity of a certain member of parliament he has that by virtue of being voted for I, I agree that once the, so the speaker can say yes, go, but my can say, well, speaker can't tell me what to do on this matter. It is my see, personal privilege. You see, if you say, if you say, you get to the point of saying that it's your personal privilege and that you would not cooperate, what you are saying is that Article 17 does not apply absolutely. Mm. The equality of the law, I mean, equality of all of us before the law would not be achieved that's what i'm saying that we should take uh, we should not take article 117 118 in isolation
It is not absolute. Because I think that they are all constitutional provisions, all right. But I think Article 17 would have a higher place of consideration than Article 117118. Okay. And I'm saying that Article 117118, it is not for the personal enjoyment of the individual MPs, but it is to ensure the sanctity of the House. And that is why when it has been brought to the attention of the Speaker, and then he forwards it to you, you can then do that in your convenience of time, as the police will also accommodate, so that the business of Parliament would not suffer. That is the only reasonable uh, 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 interpretation to that. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. If you say that, yes, I have absolute immunity, and so because Article 117 says that on my way to, on my way from, in attending at the business of Parliament, I cannot be served with any process, either criminal or civil. At what time are you going to end it? It is not absolute. And so, it should be interpreted in such a way that it is the sanctity of the house we are looking at. Of course, that house is composed of individuals. And that we should do it in such a way that the issue affecting one individual does not bring the whole house business to a standstill. And by that measure, uh, we don't embarrass parliament in the process. And that is why I'm saying that if we are looking at Article 17 very well, then we will realize this Article 117118 is not absolute. And the question I, I, I pose that on its way, suppose these things happen, it is very likely, and in fact, if you don't even do that, it, it, it will sound like uh, 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 there is some kind of deficit in, 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 in your... Um, Common sense. When something has happened to you as an MP, somebody has brushed your car, you don't go to make a complaint. Everybody will question what wisdom you are applying. So it is reasonable that you will do that. Okay. When you say that if you turn the, uh, uh, the tables, you will say that, oh, in my case, you cannot because Article 117 says so. And it is absolute. And I'm saying that even if it gets to the point where the person says that, yes, I know that there's some accident which may have been caused by my action, but please go to Accra and go and save me through the speaker. Mm. That's one leg. Or I am totally immune, so don't save me with anything. Or I am available right now. Or I'm available right now to go through the process. Mm. I think that prudence, ordinary prudence, would even dictate that in a situation like this, when immediate business of parliament is not going to be affected, you should even make yourself available as a citizen of Ghana to now respond to questions. After all, it is not going to affect the business of parliament within the circumstance. Mm. Okay. That's what I think. Otherwise, we will make a mockery of, of it as at now. People are complaining. The very people who gave you their power, mm. their mandate to go and think for them, go and make laws for them, you are now saying that you are superhuman and that you should be treated differently. 
But is that what they are really saying, or it is? That's what I'm saying. So, so, why, the so why is that? Why is the speaker saying that he's not releasing? Well, we did indicate why, if you read the speaker's statement. That's because the speaker uh, basically says he says members of parliament are not above the law. The issue is not that a member of parliament cannot be investigated or arrested. The issue is the procedure to follow. So what procedure? What procedure, what, proce what procedure is the speaker saying we should use? What is the speaker that you have been using? The procedure has always been that if there is an infraction of the law mm -hmm. involving an MP, mm -hmm. the police would write to the speaker so and tell him that X Y Z happened involving mm -hmm. this uh, MP, mm -hmm. and we would like to, uh, I mean, uh, we would like to invite him mm -hmm. for some interrogation, some questioning, and all that. Mm -hmm. And prior to uh, this matter, all previous speakers would widely grant it, let you know that this is the business. But he's not said he won't grant it. He said <coughs> it is the expectation of the right honorable speaker that the Ghana Police Service will conduct its investigations mindful of the provisions of Article 117118 and 122. Yes, they are mindful of that and they have written to you. What prevents the Prior speaker? to attempting to arrest the said member of parliament twice. And that's why I told you that, look, even when it is happening in your presence, mm. in your presence, it means then that it is reasonable to conceive that he is not there immediately to go and attend to parliament to do anything. That's what I'm saying. We should interpret this constitution uh, with the guiding principle Stated in to four verse that But that's why I was saying that. So, so you see, yeah, the, the person himself, the person himself had. Let me, let me, let me land. The person himself had written. Was he working as a parliamentarian then? At the time that he went for the protest. For the protest. Yes, in your estimation, would he be working as a member of parliament? I don't think so. He's, is he not representing? He's people? representing the people, but you see, is he take his duties as a parliamentarian. Is that not the key? Representation? No, he is representing the people. Yes. He channels his uh, uh, information or the concerns of his people in the house. Hmm. Demonstration, you see, is a constitutionally granted right to anybody, hmm. including MPs. Okay. Right? So, for some as he has joined his people in doing that. When you are exercising that right, and something results from that. You should also be able to stand up to it and face the responsibility that runs uh, directly from those activities. So you would not, uh, in one breath, say that, oh, I have the right to demonstrate. But if in the process of demonstrating, I commit a crime, don't come and arrest me. Go to the speaker. What do you mean that you have, actually, it's just like you have, at that time, it's just like you have waived that 117 procedure because the police are there and when it is happening right in their face you see that they should not okay point one minute let me uh here i want to talk to franklin could you back quickly doctor i see drama uh, i'll give you two minutes you wanted to make a quick input before i get to franklin still i want to go back to my my earlier point i think we need some clear interpretation of uh, of these articles to bring clarity look i mean i want to say in all the functions that members of parliament perform when you take your microphone and go on the streets and the ipu the interparliamentary union did that many years ago they asked citizens from around the world 
what is the most important role of a member of parliament and representation came number one uh, so my point is that look we need to be careful in terms of how we look at this i don't think that there was a disagreement in terms of the member of parliament uh, performing his representational role i think the issue is if we hear the police correctly I mean, there was some damage to property and so on, and that is criminal. So that is an issue that needs to be to be dealt with. Now, um, again, in my earlier submission, I have made reference to the fact that in some Commonwealth countries, which I mean, from where we borrow some of these, uh, uh, I mean, privileges and immunities, I think they've had uh, occasion to take a second look at uh, these provisions. And let me cite the example of Australia. In Australia, at one point. Um, related to these issues of uh, privileges and immunities, they even have provisions which say that five days before the performance of a parliamentary duty and five days after the performance of a parliamentary duty, a member of parliament cannot be obstructed. I mean, I think the, the rationale behind this is that, you know, our members of parliament need to take time to prepare, to go and do deliberations, and once they finish, they have to take time to I mean, prepare their reports and so on and so forth. So these are some of the points that I, I just I just wanted to throw in there. But finally, to say that once again, immunity is not personal. I think immunity is attached to the function of a member of parliament, and the function of a member of parliament must not be looked at. Um, I think from a geographical uh, point of view, that he or she is in the house but rather looked at from the three core functions that a member of parliament ought to perform, whether it is within the house in Osu or maybe in another place. And again, that is where perhaps maybe the, the, the interpretation of the right of Abu speaker needs to come in. But all these are not clearly stated in 117 and 118, and that's why we need to revisit I mean, those uh, constitutional provisions. All right, then. Thank you very much. Uh, let me... Uh, Franklin, good morning. Good morning. Good morning to my good friends on the show. I, I'm sure you've been listening to this. You've also had the opportunity to engage with the police on this matter and how they have approached it. I'm sure you had legitimate questions when your organization, along with others, met the police. One, what did you glean from what the police are trying to push through with this? And two, what has been your estimation over this of this debate or tussle on what is what constitutes parliamentary immunity or parliamentary privilege? Well, first of all, I mean, the interaction with the police was very productive. Um, as with every new police administration, we've had opportunity to engage. And, uh, of course, this matter came up. My reading of the interactions uh, is pretty straightforward, that the police was trying to maintain law and order um, and nothing else. At least that's what I get from their body language as well as their disposition on the matter. Uh, as to where I stand on this particular matter, I mean, I like to travel the road of the, travel on the path of, uh, should I call it uh, prudence, as has been used uh, by, I think, the uh, former member of parliament, Honorable Aban. The fact of the matter clearly is that uh, Honorable Susu, who is a good friend, um, shouldn't have allowed this to escalate the way it did. I mean, I'd have thought 
with respect, well, I mean, I still respect the dictates surrounding the suppression of powers principle. That, of course, the various and distinct uh, powers are are quite independent in their thinking and in their practice. Uh, and so maybe the police is seen as being an extension of the executive and overreacting. But I think, clearly speaking, the matters as have been presented, or the way the chronology of these matters uh, strictly point to some level of, uh, should I call it, you know, bravado that I thought we, we would have rather not had. Uh, bravado on the part of my good friend Sosu. Um, maybe I think he was stretching the parliamentary uh, privileges too far. This could have been handled quite maturely in a very, in a less confrontational manner by he even choosing to say, okay, listen, I hear what you're saying. Um, let me come and explain things to you the way they are so that you don't um, escalate the matter to the extent where they are not looking for you and then, you know, all this merry-go-round, you are in hiding. I don't know whether he's in hiding or not. Uh, and then raising the ten the level of tension between the between parliament and the police service to the level that we, we I mean a comfortable level that we are experiencing right now. So I feel strongly that in order not to inspire diffidence in the two uh, bodies, in this in parliament as well as in the police service, uh, this matter could have been handled by single the singular action of honorable Susu himself. To say that, well, I'm not going to extend or look for cloaks, uh, I mean, extend my privileges. I'll just go and answer these questions. We can have a conversation as to what exactly transpired. And I don't think the police would have, uh, I don't know, but from my reading, I, I, I don't think the police would have been this gung-ho on making sure that they are arresting willy-nilly. Because the point really is that once you travel on those paths, then you are giving the police an indication that you are indeed uh, you've fallen foul of the, of the law and you are trying to hide under the cloak of immunity. I am on the strict and narrow path of prudence or maybe common sense that this matter could have been handled by Honorable Susu himself uh, just yielding initially uh, to this request to, to, to go into the matter. And then that matter would have been, and that matter would have ended. The police perhaps, perhaps would have just cautioned him, or cautioned uh, his constraints, and the matter would have been solved or dealt with uh, rather than where it is right now. So that's my reading of this matter. Uh, I seriously think the police should be inspired to go about their lawful uh, operations, and I think the police are not saying by that. Okay, so we seem to have lost uh, Franklin there to a technical hitch. We'll try and um, get him back on this matter. But the issue seems to have been uh, ruled uh, quite nicely. I, I, I will spend the last part of this particular segment to add the matter of the parliamentary, was it a uh, uh, edict to the General Legal Direct Council? <laughs> Directed to the General Legal Council. <laughs> Uh, that has also been criticized. Uh, it looks like Parliament has been trying to assert itself and people have taken umbrage. 
with uh, that. And if Anabu Mahama Yaiga is still with us, I would want him to, I would want him to address this particular matter, because critics I've heard uh, uh, Mr. Prempe Ek, for instance, speak about this. I've heard uh, Mr. Okujeto, Sam Okujeto Senior, also speak about this and say he doesn't really even understand what people are trying to do with uh, by saying giving directives to the general legal counsel that they should admit people and whatnot. Is Parliament overasserting itself? Does it not know what its powers are? Hello, Yes, uh, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Okay, you froze for a while. Uh, well, I mean, the, 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 the key thing to appreciate is that Parliament has its constitutional function of passing legislation, uh, processing for passage, but then also Parliament is a political body that oversights the executive. And when the Parliament says that uh, something wrong has happened, Parliament can buy resolutions direct that certain things should be done by members of the executive. Parliament doesn't have a direct enforcement mechanism, as in go and arrest and then, you know, force you to execute it. The Parliament has mechanism for compelling you to do what they think you should do. And, and that, is, that is a political leverage that can be used. So, as for those who are saying that Parliament's constitutional function is to pass laws and they cannot uh, pass resolutions directing that injustice should be righted and etc., they probably don't appreciate the fact that we have ways of compelling you if we are unanimous about it and we are united and we decide that you must do it, we will get you to do it. And that is a political leverage. So we won't be able to come to your ministry and then, you know, force you to do it. But sitting in parliament, we have ways that we can put political pressure on you to do exactly what we want you to do if we feel that that is right. That, that, that is interesting, but then the critics of the position parliament took on this matter was the GLC has existed for a very long time based on a certain uh, based on certain rules yes they exist in a certain way and we we saw in, indeed saw the response of the attorney general uh, to this matter who felt that parliament had perhaps over, overstepped its jurisdiction in the matter I thought the AG uh, was very wrong on that. I, I would have thought that a more appropriate approach by the AG in that letter, he indicated that he was already doing something about it. So I thought that the smartest thing for him to have done is to just say that, oh, I'm already working on it and leave it there. But to go and add that Parliament has no capacity to do that, I think that he overstepped uh, the lines. And I won't be surprised if Parliament decides that they will find a way of showing him that uh, uh, we are not overstepping our boundaries and that we can direct him to do something. If he refuses to do it, Parliament has mechanism for ensuring that we get him to do uh, things that we think are right. If he thinks that it's not right for 499, you know, 
law students or applicants to the law school who have uh, passed uh, to be denied access to uh, admission. Uh, I think that 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 is where the issue is. Um, and we we know that we can't deal directly with the general legal council. That's why we said, look, the person that we who is answerable to us is the minister, and so we direct our resolution to him. And he clearly indicates that the law gives him room to to intervene in the matter. He's already intervening in the matter, so that we are happy to hear. But his uh, stance that we we don't have the power to to direct him. I think that is 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 the wrong position. Uh, we, we can pass a resolution. Uh, we can try to implement it. If it's difficult to implement, you can come back to Parliament and explain why it is difficult for you to, to implement. But you can't see the Parliament cannot pass a resolution asking you to do something. Mm, that's interesting. Thank you, Honorable Mahama That I see you arrived at where you are going. Have a pleasant weekend, uh, Mr. Aman. Your yeah. thoughts on what the on what Parliament sends to. Because you have particular interest in this, you are, you have, I think you've, you've done some teaching at the Ghana Law School as well. Yes, I was a faculty member for five years. Uh, yes, I'm so, I'm so nursing the to go back. You know, yes, I love teaching. <laughs> but what did you make of Parliament's directive? Let me start on a note of empathy for the 499 students who uh, are alleged to have passed, but. Uh, for some reasons have not been admitted to the law school. My point I'm, I'm going to make is not to say that it is right for them to have been denied. No. Because what I've heard is that um, the pass that is looking at it in terms of 50% and above. But I later heard that um, besides that the General Legal Council or the law school said that the two parts of the examination, they were supposed to get 50% for each of those parts. So in case you got, let's say, 48 uh, at one part and you even got 60 on the other part, then you failed. Uh, I think that if that was the case, uh, it has never been the case. I mean, as uh, somebody who has had some teaching experience, it has never been the case that somebody does very well in one part and does not do so well in another. Instead, because you didn't do uh, well in the first part or the second part, uh, even though cumulatively your marks are more than fifty, you are not going to be accepted. Uh, it's it's quite uh, uh, a difficulty to understand. Be that as it may, uh, I was also trying to look at the Attorney General Speaker debate, uh, whether the um, whether Parliament had the power to direct. And here we must put all the facts together, because at the time that all these things were going on, there was also a case pending. And what was the effect of the directive? And this is what would lead me to the various powers as distributed between the three arms of government in the Constitution. If you go to Article 58, it will tell you uh, that the executive authority of Ghana shall vest in the president and shall be exercised in accordance with the provision of this Constitution. So we know where executive power is.
Now, if we go to that of the legislature, it is in Article 93. It says that um, subject to the provision of this constitution, the legislative power of Ghana shall be vested in parliament and shall be exercised in accordance with this constitution. Right. The third one that I want us to look at is Article 125, which deals with the judiciary. And there it says that uh, the It says that the judicial power of Ghana mm -hmm. shall be vested in the judiciary. Accordingly, neither the president nor parliament nor any organ or agency of president or parliament shall have or be given final judicial power. Now, with the matter being subjudicated at that time, was it in the place of parliament to have even issued that? Was that not uh, going to undermine the process which was already before the courts? Did that not prejudge the matter? And had they not taken final judicial power as far as this case is concerned? That's what I'm saying. That we must put all the facts that were available at the time into consideration before we know what uh, each person's powers were. So, to that extent, it had become a judicial issue. Who should have been left for the judiciary? having judicial, final judicial power to pronounce upon whether the matter which had been put before the court and being prosecuted by the 499 students merited the hearing of the court and of course uh, its judgment and whatever decision that the court would have taken. I thought to that extent parliament ran too quickly ahead of uh, uh, the court. But the question is, do they have uh, the power to do directives, why not? The reason being that in its functions as parliament, the exercise oversight responsibility over the executive, especially when it comes to uh, uh, spending money and of course the execution of the mandate that has been given to the executive. That's why parliament can summon any minister to come mm. and explain why XYZ, why ABC. And I believe that a parliamentary question filed an address to the Attorney General to appear in Parliament to explain why, uh, why 499 students who were alleged to have passed were not given the admission would have been in order. If Parliament had done that, it would have been in order. Unfortunately, they went ahead by passing a resolution. And it appears to me that in this resolution, it seemed to have some power of lawmaking where Parliament is now making directives, giving directives that they lost. I thought that if that was the intent, then the whole procedure should not even have come by way of uh, 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 resolution but by way of proper lawmaking. And that's governed by Article 106. Mm -hmm. Article 106 does not say that Parliament can, by resolution, just uh, push an agenda which, in its effect, seems to have uh, a lawmaking uh, 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 effect. And so uh, I think that it is some kind of a tough war between the 
Attorney General on the one side, I mean, acting on the side of General Legal Council, and Parliament as the representative of the people. We know, and I, I, I may go back to the, uh, uh, the dictum of uh, uh, JSE, uh, uh, as I quoted there. So, uh, you see, now if Parliament said that, admit them, and suppose they did not even have space, suppose they did not have resources, how are you going to do that? Put that one against Article 25, which says that education should be accessible to everybody, and that we must do it progressively free at the secondary school level, and all that and all that. Would Parliament quickly come and say that Constitution says that, so executive implement it? What if there are no uh, facilities to accommodate that? And that's where I think that Parliament ran too fast uh, ahead of what uh, uh, the, what was actually reserved by the constitution itself to the judiciary. Uh, I, I, I think that, yes, we can exercise, or parliament can exercise its uh, supervisory jurisdiction, mm -hmm. but not in the way of issuing uh, uh, directives uh, for compliance by the executive. But That's my thinking. You, you, we, we, we've had two former members, uh, well, one is not a colleague of yours, he's quite new as well, but two members of parliament, uh, just in addition, decide to table a private member's bill then to change the structure of the General Legal Council. And it's, it's very likely that will happen. For me, for me, nothing prevents them because it is still the exercise uh, of their right. In fact, even me as a private person, mm. if I feel strongly about something, I can uh, sponsor a bill which uh, I would get some MPs to buy into and, and proceed with it. So I have no problem. And in fact, when it comes to the issue of the law school itself and the fact that uh, we have a lot of uh, prospective uh, lawyers or if the applicants who want to become lawyers and they are not able to get uh, that opportunity just because we don't have facilities and all that uh, it pains me because you see you go to uh, some courts and they are not being manned by lawyers I had uh, my own experience very bitter experience where uh, 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 a nephew of mine uh, had some matter before uh, a district court. I don't want to mention the district mm -hmm. court now in the country. And th th what I'm talking about is just uh, today is Saturday. So just, uh, I think, Thursday. When I went, the magistrate did not even appreciate what we call vicarious liability because she's not a trained lawyer. So we need them so that uh, at a point in time, we can say that all prosecutions must be done by lawyers. Mm. If we get there, then we are getting to that. I do, I do well now in that area. Because we have magistrates who are not lawyers, and some of them are just crucifying the law. Right? So for me, the fact that we don't have many lawyers just because we don't have facilities to accommodate them uh, pains me. It's not as though we should also sacrifice quality over uh, 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 quantity. But I can assure you, the vast majority of them who apply have what it is to be able to become good lawyers. Now, I've held this opinion uh, openly, and I'm going to repeat it here, that 
the existence of the law school as it is now mm. has become anachronistic. Mm. Yes. Because it was established to deal with an existing problem. That problem doesn't exist anymore. Because in those days, when you mentioned the archers, the urbans, and all those old, old lawyers, they had to have their training in England. So you will see that they are either from Grace Inn, in the Temple, or Middle Center Temple, and all those kind of things. Yes. So there was the need for locally trained uh, lawyers. And that's why the law school came, right? Kwame uh, they started training people. The University of Ghana became the only law faculty to produce uh, students for the law school. So you would finish your academic work, if I speak that way, mm -hmm. and get to the law school for practical training. Now, uh, we have huge population now. The spaces are not available. But I don't think that we are training, or the, the, the lawyers we have in Ghana are any better than the lawyers in UK and the US where they don't have law school like Makola. Mm. So if we can strengthen the apprenticeship system well, and then when the person finishes law school or law faculty, as we call in Ghana, law faculty, then the person can go through that apprentice system and pass the bar exam. So the General Legal Council can only exist as a certifying uh, an examining body to get people to pass kind of like a YEC. Yes, and then they, con they have a continuing obligation to uh, regulate, regulate our practice. Thank you. Because you go to New York, New York bar, that's what they do. Mm. Massachusetts, that's what they do. Right? You are lucky, you are a US trained lawyer. <laughs> no, but when you go to the UK, that's what they also do. <laughs> Thank you very much, Mr. Alex. Well, let me take a couple of messages before I do anyway. a quick break. Joseph Adebois says, I agree that parliamentarians are not about the Lama say that the, uh, the changes uh, that the changes leveled against him are uh, the yeah. charges leveled against him are more of a political nature. Why doesn't he have the right to demonstrate? The IGP should go and arrest Howard Kumsen. Then we we'll take him <laughs> serious. Ayuba from Yabon Savannah says, what exactly is the crime of uh, Anabusu? So well, I've outlined what the police have charged him with. Uh, it says, what is preventing the police uh, from arresting the organizers, but are rather harassing the member of parliament? Walanya uh, Nakwetia says, the speaker should come clear on this. Uh, if an MP is attacked on his way to parliament by criminals, would police first write to the speaker for permission before going to his head? We want to... Uh, well, well, I know. I mean, this is neither here nor there. This question of yours, honestly. Uh, A.U. Farouk Tamali, um, he says the charges leveled, filed against the MP by the police is unfortunate. The IGP should not allow the political class to use him. Uh, then Isaac from Yendi says it's unfortunate that current happenings against the member of parliament uh, from Medina. And then Musa Bata and Asawasi says the 1992 constitution is clear on what the police should do. The unnecessary tension in the public domain is not helpful. Take a quick break. When we return, we will talk about digitization and the vice president.
issue on uh, City 973 and also on City TV. Uh, we're moving into the second phase of the conversation where we are discussing the digitization drive of the government. It seems to have been a big part of the agenda over the past four or five years. Lots of money has been spent on different projects to try and move the economy in a certain direction. In fact, all the activities were put together uh, in a lecture delivered by the Vice President a couple of days ago at the Chess University, um, raised very, very interesting projects that are, have been accomplished, some that are ongoing and some that will be done. And um, some have raised questions about some of the objectives of these uh, projects, how they were achieved, what it means for the economy, do we need all of them, could they have been improved, do we need... You know, more holistic conversation about how some of the objectives can be achieved. Nobody's saying they are wrong, but can the operationalization be improved for better value? And that seems to be the word everybody is using, value. Are we getting value for the money we are spending on this whole digitalization um, agenda? We will listen a bit to what the Vice President said, and then when we come back, I'll be talking to Bright Simmons, uh, who's a Vice President of Imani Africa. We've replaced uh, the president of Imani Africa with the vice president of Imani Africa, as well as uh, the executive secretary at the office of the vice president, uh, Augustine Blay, will join us. And then later on, Abdul Abdu Ghani, head of corporate affairs of the NIA, will also join the conversation. So let's listen to um, the vice president, uh, highlights of the lecture that he delivered at Ashes University. The, the Ghana card is also an e-passport that contains biometric information that can be used to authenticate the identity of travelers. The government, since this year, has been working with the International Civil Aviation Authority organization, ICAO, to globally activate the e-passport function of the Ghana card, and I'm happy to announce, I am happy to announce that on 13th October this year, the Ghana officially became the 79th in member of the International Civil Aviation Organization Public Key Directory com Community. Ghana's country signing certificate authority would therefore soon be imported into the PKD system through what is known as a key ceremony. The key ceremony for Ghana will be held at ICAO headquarters in Montreal before the end of the first quarter of 2022. Ladies and gentlemen, what does all this mean? This means that by the end of the first quarter next year, the Ghana card will be recognized globally as an e-passport 
and can be read and verified in all ICAO compliant borders. That is 197 countries, 44,000 airports in the world. When this happens, holders of the Ghana card will be allowed to board any flight to Ghana. Furthermore, the good news for diasporan Ghanaians is that when the Ghana Immigration uh, Service is linked to the NIA architecture, and that will be soon, diasporan Ghanaians who hold the Ghana card should not have to obtain visas to return to Ghana. To solve this problem of a lack of a working address system in Ghana, we have leveraged on GPS technology to implement a digital address system for Ghana, capturing every square inch of land in Ghana. In the process, the Land Use and Spatial Planning Authority, LUSPA, has identified 7.5 million properties in Ghana across the villages, towns, and cities. 7.5 million properties. And we have provided all these with street names house numbers and digital addresses and right now we are in the process LUSPA is in the process of affixing the address plates to all these properties it's ongoing it's, it's a major uh, achievement for Ghana we engaged with Google last year with, we engaged Google last year with a request to integrate our digital address system into Google Maps. I know all of you students, when you go to look for a location, you immediately go on WhatsApp and, 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 and get to Google Maps and then forward it and so on. We said to Google that we wanted to integrate our digital address system into Google Maps. They did their due diligence and this year they agreed for us to do so. So we will do so by the end of the year. So when you enter, once it is done and you enter and put the address of any uh, uh, property or the digital address, Google Maps will take So that's the Vice President uh, speaking to some of the projects that we will see. Uh, first quarter of 2022 also spoke about some of the things that have already, already been done. We're, we are hearing we are going to get uh, e-pharmacies, uh, unique uh, Ghana card numbers for newborns, which is positive. Uh, the merging of certain databases, quite a lot being done, but we'll try and get a proper breakdown of it. So, Augustine Blay works, he sits with the vice president. So, Augustine, well, it's been five years of carrying out a digitalization agenda. If I were to ask you to give me a report card in two minutes, what would you say? would be the status of this whole agenda of yours. What percentage are you at? Um, thank you very much. I think we have to look at transforming the economy through digitization. That is the objective. And key, the cornerstone of the transformation of the economy through digitization is identifying the players in the economy. And as we speak, the Vice President mentioned, we have 15.7 million Ghanaians have been identified having a Ghana card. The recent census by the GSS show that there are about 15.6 similar uh, adults in, in the country. So the identification of the players is actually, for me, is a key measure of the process of transforming the economy, which we have done. 
So um, the second step is building the component because it's an architecture. You have to make it modular so that when you have the component in place, you can then take the component to provide further solutions. And if we've done the ID, we've done the address, we've done the mobile money interoperability, you know, we've done the payment platform government services. Now what is left now is to combine this component to further provide services and make it easier for Ghanaians to receive services, save them time. Mm. And in doing all this, like I said, where would you say you are at 50%, 60%, 70%? It's a process. Digitalization is a continuum. Mm. You, you cannot really measure as they've achieved because in the, lifetime, in the lifespan of technology, six months a lot of it, there's always room for improvement. And in terms of building the key construct of our digital economic transformation, you've completed the key pieces, the ID, the address, the mobile money interoperability, and the payment. What is left in the address, and as you say, the vice president mentioned, the 7.5 million um, um, addresses that have been identified, we have to complete the placing or fixing of these address plates mm -hmm. on the properties. So the foundation, the key element, is is, uh, they are established. What, what, what do you say to those who say the whole digitalization agenda was born in different silos? So we had different projects going in different directions. There was no middle ground of these projects, even though they were supposed to be interlinked. And so let's say a year or two ago when we started, because we've, for instance, take the NIA and what they were doing. Basically, we've spent money and wasted money on the first part, mm -hmm. then had to do a second round. Now we are trying to merge NIA data, SNIT data, this data. If we had one position paper, on what the entire digitization agenda was going to be. These were projects that were supposed to feed into one another. So you would not have the kind of wastage we've had, perhaps, and we would see the interlink a bit better, don't you think? The interlinked were, linkages were always there. The vice president wrote about these linkages in his book um, uh, before, um, in, before, even before assuming power. He, he mentioned in his book, in his conclusion, he identified the importance of having an ID, an address, and mobile money interoperability mm -hmm. as the cornerstone of a digital economic transformation. So these were there already. Now, it is the appreciation of how these components were being built. And then now, that's why you have to come out on, on Tuesday to show clearly that the linkages were not an afterthought. They were all part of the program. Let me give you an example. If you are looking at building a digital architecture from an IT expert perspective, mm -hmm. there's a model. You build your component to be modular. They can stand by themselves. They can also play with each other to provide a solution. There is a new way of building um, um, technology solutions. And this is exactly what you did, that each component can stand on their own, but at the same time, they can play together to provide further solutions. So when we are looking at, um, I'm looking at National Service Secretariat, um, what they have done with the addressing and identification component, they say that before, um, the national service personnel were not getting their certificate. It was difficult for them to get a certificate. But now, when they get their, their PIN to go in there and register, they provide their digital address. And National Service Secretariat now, in partnership with Ghana Post and other 
delivery couriers can then take their certificate and go to the homes of these uh, personnel and deliver their certificate. So as a result of National Service Secretary picking the identification and addressing solution, they are then making the service delivery of National Service Secretary even better. So now they can deliver all the certificates every year unlike before. Hmm. It's the same thing when you go into which the Vice President talked about, about the common property uh, rate um, um, system. Well, we have identified the individuals. We now have the addresses. We now have a way for them to pay or for, to pay their, their, um, uh, their property tax. Now we need to build them. So when you have these components in place, we can now integrate them. You, where you live, how to pay, please, your property is due now, please pay. Mm -hmm. They can pay online. So that, is, that was the whole idea. Mm -hmm. Build them according to the latest technology architecture development, mm -hmm. and that's what we did. So the ID, the address, the mobile money interoperability, and the Ghana Gov payment platform was built to stand by themselves and at the same time integrate with each other. But then I guess when it comes to digital, it's always a matter of usage, isn't it? And yes, sir. For a lot of these projects that you've spoken about, mobile money interoperability, yes, yes one can speak to that. Yes. The address system, yes. honestly, Mr. Blay, yes. who uses it? I use it. Really? Yes. So I use if, it, if I, you were I, sending me a location to where you live, that is what you would send me, I would not be able to read it. I just gave an example about National Service Secretary using it. So the 100,000 national service... That's the state agency. Shouldn't it be a matter of well, they are using everyday it. people? Yes, but, but the, the personnel are everyday people. These are students who have finished school mm. who need to serve their state. They have to go interact with the citizens in wherever they are posted, and they need to receive their certificate after this. So these are, these, these are everyday people. That's the side. I'm saying if I pick, an Uber, I pick a boat, I'm not sending a data. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting there. I'm, I'm getting there. So the missing piece, as people people as you're, you're um, alluding to is the the need to integrate our addressing system into the major mapping system of the of, of the world the mm. Google map and this, uh, the iOS maps so when I go to the US and I need to visit my friend or an office they only give me the address they don't tell me where they are located mm -hmm. they, they are put it into Google map that address then Google map look at the address and say Hmm, this address is located at this place. It pops up, I click it, it gives me direction. What we don't have in Ghana is that our addressing system, when not loaded in Google, what Google have done is to pay contractors, people, to go out there, like if I go to Google Map today, I'll search for city TV or city FM. I'll find it. Well, because Google is paying people to try to update their map because that's, that's how important it is. But my house in my village your house in your village, Google has no interest in that. If you look at Google Map satellite and you look at it, you will see that Google can show the houses in Accra in certain areas. Most places it's blank. Well, as a country, going with the inclusiveness agenda of the president, His Excellency Nanado Danko Akufuado, that solutions might be inclusive. You cannot just develop solutions only for Accra and Kumase and Kekos, but, but develop solutions that attempt to include everyone else. So the addressing system that we are talking about, the 7.5 million property addresses have been identified. Now Google says, good job, let me see what you've done, because now instead of paying people to load this into my system, you guys are just like the level at the US, the France, the UK, where they had the addressing system independent of Google. 
Google built their platform independent addressing system. They imported the addressing into their system. We have our addressing system now. Google says, I want to import it in. That then facilitated adoption of the addressing and your day-to-day -day activity. So, so you think that the whole Jack, where are you, worked? In your estimation, it will yeah. work, but what does it will work? But hasn't worked. I yet. use it, like I said, national service personnel, hundred thousand a day use it. I know people that use it. I use it. So if you are going, to, if you want to know your current location today, mm. it's easy to say I'm going to find WhatsApp, my current location. That's mm. what it tells you. But your destination, you don't, you don't have that because mm. we have not, we have not integrated our addressing system to Google. When our all the addresses are loaded to Google, you know where you are from. WhatsApp will tell you that. Mm -hmm. Your iPhone will tell you that. Your Android phone will tell you that where I am. Okay. But where you are going, that's the solution you are solving. That's the problem that we are solving by loading all the addresses in there so we can find your destination and mm -hmm. take you there. So right now, what people do, we just send you where you are. Then you receive it, you click it, and then you, you go mm -hmm. there. But if you're going for an interview, for example, if we don't have that address in, in, the, in, in Google Maps, you can't use it. Okay. That's a limitation that we have in terms of our solution. But the journey, again, digitization is a journey. It's not an event. It's a process. So you have phases. You must first build your, your, your foundation, build on top of it. And that's what we did, build a foundation, which was the first phase, identifying mm -hmm. every five by five meter square in the country. Build on top of it by identifying the 7.5 million properties in the country as you're fixing the plate in front of every house. And now we can then load it in Google to complete the cycle and then increase the adoption and the usage of it. Mm. My, my, let me ask this question before I, I, I go online mm -hmm. and then speak to uh, Bright to hear his yeah. initial thoughts as well. Another criticism has been and it's not just of this particular, but a lot of government agenda. It just pops up. There is no centralized document to look at. For instance, 1D1F. It took a long time to even find a paper that actually describes what the government was trying to do. Say, if I was trying to find the original position paper on Ghana's digitalization agenda, I find segments of it. The communications minister, Esla, says this. The vice president says that. Why is it that it's so difficult to find that centralized document that everybody can look at? Then local players can say, okay, this is what we are trying to do. This is where we can engage. Yes. So if you look at the national ID solution, mm -hmm. it's not new. The NIA was established um, in 2000 under President Kufo's mm -hmm. um, presidency. The addressing system, local government, and um, Ghana Post have been trying to do this from time immemorial. These are not new concepts. Mm -hmm. It's using digitization to improve upon making it more efficient. Mm -hmm. So if, if, if you look at today the landscape, as I mentioned earlier about National Service Secretary, for example, mm -hmm. you go to National Service, they have problems. Digitization is to solve problems. Mm -hmm. You don't need a position people to tell you what the problem is. You need to look at the inefficiency of the system and challenge them to say, use, use digitization to solve that. It's a good point that he's making about having a national... You're not a private company. Of course. There's a national ICT policy that was developed before. I know um, uh, Honorable Esla Uso is completing the, nation, the national ICT and digitization policy that she's going to publish very soon. But what we are talking about here are existing solutions, existing problems that took us so long to, to, to complete. And the vice president challenging the uh, state players to say, 
guy, get on with it and use digitization to get it. The done. reason why that becomes crucial, though, um, uh, Augustine, is if knowing the way our government works, somebody comes in and says, well, look, this plan that was laid out, we do not disagree with how this was carried out. We do not disagree with this particular agenda at this point. Yes. Which is under democracy, there's always a disagreement. Yes, certainly. But yeah, there will always be a. There's always is that not what, what a paper then would do to establish why we are doing this and why we are merging this? Because you talk about, yeah, NIA existed. Yes. This one existed. Yes. You putting out that paper then have established that the objective of this is to bring everything together. Yes. And this is how we are going to do it over X period. Okay. There is none. I mean, the, 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 so like, are, we are simply at the mercy of the vice president's officers. We are going to do this. Let's go do it. No, that's, this is not how it works. It, it, it is. It, it, if you look at the solutions we are talking about, these are not things that were cooked out in some office somewhere to say, "Now go do it." These are things that, like I said, NI is law. Hmm. Right now, as we speak, Death and Death Registry is improving its processes, use digitization. Hmm. It, you know, as we are talking about tax collection mm. and property rate, there's a huge underperformance in collection property rate taxes. Mm. And there's somebody's role today, mandated by law to collect. Right? These are not new problems that we are defined. These are old problems that exist. But the, the actors now have an opportunity to use the current state of digitization to make it better to serve the state. Now, if I was talking about there's a new problem, let's all come together and define a solution going forward. Yeah, I, I, can, I can understand that. And, and then, so if you look at, um, I can use a simple one, DVLA. Mm. DVLA had problems. Gold boys were invading the whole place for, for, for forever. The citizens were frustrated getting services from DVLA. They had to pay a premium to Gold boys just to get them to get a driver's license and so forth. They end up getting a lot of fake driver's licenses. Well, let's get a policy paper on how we're going to solve that. No, Mr. DVLA CEO, this is a problem that you have. You want to use digitization to solve it and make it easier for government, for, for the citizens to engage with you. And they responded to that. And using the models that were placed in Sequoia, I need to have your ID. I need to now remove these Goro boys and make it easy for you to pay for these services. And then citizens get through it. Okay. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Mr. Yes. Augustine Blay, uh, at least for the, for the start. We'll get yes. to a few more things. But, sure. Bright, good morning. Good morning. How are you, sir? Uh, well, Bright, uh, thank you for spending your Saturday with us. I'm sure you've been listening to um, Augustine Blay speak about the digitization agenda that the government is on and what the objective is you've had your criticisms of certain aspects of it are you any more convinced by what he has outlined this morning well, obviously not i mean he doesn't even believe that um, a government that is uh, accountable to the people and accountable to multiple institutions from an auditor general all the way through parliament etc should document um, precisely the policies that he's pursuing because he thinks they're completely relevant. He thinks that it's just a matter of all of us agree that there's a problem and therefore instructions being issued um, and there should be no records that enable someone like myself in the civil society movement to be able to put critical analysis together to establish whether or not the policies and the way they are being implemented uh, add up or not. So he doesn't even believe in that. So obviously I'm not going to agree with anything he said. But uh, for us to be really effective in this conversation, 
we need to dig into these projects one by one as case studies. Okay. It's very difficult to make comments in general terms. Okay. So let's we identify specific issues okay. and then we can delve into them. All right, then let's let's do that. He touts the uh, 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 Ghana address. I've, I have my doubts about it as well, but Mr. Blaise says it's being used by the National Service Secretariat I, I, heavily. I think, I think, mm -hmm. I think we have to so correct. Don't worry about it. Don't worry. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm in total control of this. Don't worry at all. I, I, Mr. Blaise, let him go on. Okay. So, he speaks about... Let's, 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 start, with the, let's start with the digital. Let's start with Jack. Where are you? Okay, first of all, um, I think we, we need a theory of digitization in Ghana. The theory of digitization in Ghana is that we identify a problem opportunity in very general terms. Yeah. We spend millions of dollars on, on that problem. And then later we find out we've misdiagnosed the problem and then go back and spend more money in a recurrent cycle of spending money attempting to solve problems. That is the theory of digitization in Ghana. It's been the case for 30 years. Okay. In the case of um, um, the master addressing system in particular, I listen very carefully to Mr. Blay, and I like his enthusiasm for digitization. Let's not be, um, uh, let's not be amiss about it. We are very um, happy that we have a very senior politician of the stature of the vice president bringing technology and digitization to the top of the national agenda. That is something that all of us in the civil society movement, those of us in technology, actually find particularly inspiring. What we disagree with is the approach to policymaking, the approach to project design, the complete disregard for technical consultation, the tendency to believe that they are not accountable to anybody, the fact that we are wasting so much more money. And then I will go into detail as we, we unravel some of these projects. Take the national addressing system. The way you decide where somebody is standing on the surface of the planet of the Earth is to use some kind of triangulation mechanism backed by a satellite. Ghana does not have a single satellite. Almost all the positional data in terms of determining where something is on the planet, on the surface of the planet, is data provided by satellites owned by the American military, something called the GPS. There are additional data, uh, geospatial software that create grids using that data and the rest of it. None of that original technology is in Ghana. We use a Google API to get access to GPS data and other geospatial data and then we've added labels to grids on the surface of the earth. That labels we are calling an address. The truth though is that each of those grids, if you take like say a two meter by two meter grid or whatever, will not cover an address completely because an address is a fuzzy concept. If you take CTFM as, as, as an example, your total land mass or your total acreage um, or square, uh, square meters or whatever you want to call it, will be several much more than each of those grids. So you have several addresses, digital addresses, if we use that concept as an address. Now, in order to be able to create some kind of uniqueness, we say, okay, it doesn't really matter. We will select one of those and call it an address. The problem that we have is that because Google has a free service to also provide those labels, those codes that we are talking about, called PLUS codes, which countries like Nepal, Navajo, Community and the rest, and are published on this, are using for free. If we pay a huge amount of money to a private contractor to come and apply labels to the grids, and then later on we say because we are not having deep integration to Google, we want to go back and integrate into Google, it appears if somebody did not sit down and think this through properly. Because if you talk this through properly, you will use Google's own technology, plus codes, to apply the labels so that when the time comes for you to benefit from other Google functionality, like Google Maps that you were talking about and the rest of it, 
that integration will be seamless and will not cost you additional uh, funding. Hmm. Right? You spend millions of dollars creating your own proprietary system only to discover years later that the integration is not sufficient. You validate the argument we make that in Ghana, we tend to think of these problems and solutions in general terms, spend a lot of money, and then go back and spend more money to redesign the problem. So that's a, a perfect example. And we can go into several projects. Okay, that's fine. Take the way we've managed payroll management in Ghana, for instance. Mm. Sometime around 1999, we said we we're going to do something called BPEMS, BPEMS. Now, alongside doing that, we have all these integrated payroll projects, IPPD, IPPD1, IPPD2, etc. And then in 2009, we said, look, all of these things were too fragmented. It was not well integrated into workflows. So let's introduce something called GIFMIS. We then spend money, eventually, we've now spent maybe more than $100 million on GIFMIS. Today, today, people still don't get paid when they are newly hired on time. We still have people that are old money, teachers that are old money all the way back in 2012 because reconciliation was not done properly. Due to, and I'll explain here, this in a, and I'll be very brief because these are matters that typically you need hours to you know, kind of delve into, but I'll try and be very brief. Okay. We decided at some point that we're going to introduce something called the ESPV to provide validation. Now, here is a funny thing. The MDA, the Ministry of the Department of the Agency, head is the one that sends the payroll information. The strategy is that they then send it back to you in an electronic form for you to confirm that, yeah, these people should be paid. That entire process is missing the most fundamental element to make it effective, which is that there must be attendance monitoring. So if you've not fixed attendance monitoring, any attempt to use any kind of validation method will be weak because I'm the person who sent you the payroll data. So if you send back to me through some another electronic channel, and by the way, they spent a whole bunch of money on this ESP meeting on, on 20, in 2013, separate from all the work that have been done in GIFMES. If you send it back to me and say I should validate, of course I'm going to validate. Because I'm the one who initiated the transfer of the payroll <coughs> data in the first place. So unless you fix that, you don't go in and create another problem. Then we said, oh, no, no, no. We wanted to spend even more money. So we went to Oracle and then asked Oracle to give us technology to do the HRMIS, the uh, Human Resource Management Information System. We created that problem. The validation issues have not been solved. It was so bad that the current president in 2019 then said, okay, stop the HRMIS for a while and let's figure it out. When we spend so much money on it and then go back to IPPD2, you see the problem. So typically, they don't think through the problem end to end. Most of the, issue, the, the, the decisions are driven by vendors, the people that are being paid. And because the people that are being paid are the ones driving the decisions, they, are, they have, don't have the right incentive to ensure that these solutions are well joined together, solve our problems effectively, and cost us less. You talk about the national ID system, for instance. We have about five major vendors. Almost none of that technology is built in Ghana, to be entirely honest with you. The PKD infrastructure is crypto vision. The national EID system that has been designed around that PKD system is crypto vision. The underlying software started with uh, X Infotech and NXP. We have uh, a data card in the US providing most of the card uh, related infrastructure. So none of this is Ghanaian technology, which is not uh, a problem because there are some technologies that are too advanced for Ghana. We get it. The difference is that architecture, the thinking through, should be Ghanaian. You cannot do a PKD infrastructure when it's not sorted out your certificate authorities properly, when your license service and those things and the issues that govern them are not clear. My understanding is that a whole bunch of data is now sitting in German data centers, American data centers, all over the place. If I ask Mr. Blay, as he's sitting there now, to give me an architectural document for how PKD has been deployed, he does not have it. 
<laughs> and if he is actual, no, because he can, if he wants, he should publish it tomorrow. The PKD architecture, the different security authorities, how they intersect. I, as uh, a civil society um, uh, analyst, my job is to provide accountability and ensure that there's accountability of the government. I need the information about these projects in a way that I can make sensible pronouncement about things like is data protection law in Ghana being fully complied with across the architecture of that solution? If CryptoVision is managing our PKD and the license authority systems and those things are all not clearly defined so that we can query them whether they're effective. A time may come when in fact our sovereign signing authorities in the hands of German contractors. So to mean that if a minister claims that he's authenticated a document because he's in national PKD and because of that he thinks a sovereign action by Ghana, in fact it's not because of the architecture of the design. We said we're going to build a national ID system, we're going to spend $1.2 billion. If you take the average cost per, per citizen, that is almost $40. This is one of the most expensive national ID projects I've seen in the world. Pakistan is doing it for $1.2 per person. India is doing it for $3, ABBA, $3 per person. If you do that $40 per person, we have to ask the question why. We did the analysis, and the reason is that you have a lot of very expensive subcontractors. And because these are expensive subcontractors, it adds up to a very expensive project. Then eventually you find out that because it was a PPP model, money has to be made from the cat because that's the way it was designed. It was designed so that Ghana spends a certain amount of money. The private sector spent a huge amount of money. But if you're going to spend 500 and something million dollars, then you have to find a way to get everybody to be paying close to the average price of the cat. Because if the average price of the cat is around $40 over its life cycle, then over that life cycle, I must be able to get at least $100 from every Ghanaian in some fashion over that 15-year life, uh, life term. So you find out that the government then begins to make decisions favoring people going there and paying for the card because that's the only way the project is sustainable. My argument is that if we have had a proper national debate and civil society was involved, there was technical consultations, many of us would have pushed against that because we would have argued that of, of, uh, while we need private resource and private capital, this is over-privatization of a very important national system. And making it so expensive and therefore requiring so much investment capital will mean that over time, the incentives of the managers of that system and our national interest will misalign. They, just, they want to make money because they have to recover their investment. And they have spent hundreds of millions of dollars. So they have to find ways to get people to pay. So what they do is that they do very short registration periods. People go and bunch up and queue up. Many people are not able to get it done in the period because they look at the queues and they say, I'm not going to do it. Then they say, okay, now if you want a premium service, come and pay 250 Ghana cities. These are all public interest and national interest matters. These are not matters that Mr. Blake and Wade sounds really about. <laughs> if we want to take democracy seriously in this country, we need to hold people like Mr. Blake accountable for the actions. We have to say, why are you charging people so much money when you've managed the system so badly? Many people could not register. These are serious matters. So for Mr. Blake to say that, well, you don't need them possibly back, you know, if I just instruct the DVD, I find that a bit worrying. My duty as a civil society analyst is that when somebody like Mr. Blake comes to your set, I am grilling him about how he's spending our money, the decisions he's making, and whether those decisions are sound or not. Take the COVID app that was deployed. Yes. Supposed to help with comfort. Yeah, but you have three minutes just so that you know how to uh, apply it. We went on and deployed this solution at a time when Google and Apple were designing systems around um, validation of, of, of privacy and data, protection and the rest. So, you know, one, first we, got, we couldn't get it on the, on the App Store, and finally we managed to resolve those issues. Once the program was then launched, we then discovered that we are not really properly integrated into the contact tracing system at the Ghana Health Service and the likes of that. So the contact tracing measure 
if you get exposed, the notifications couldn't be, be managed because there was just no integration. Who was it that sat down as an architect working in the public interest, not working for contractors and vendors who are making hundreds of millions of dollars on all of these projects that we are talking about, but working in the national interest? What was the consultation mechanism? Who did they call into a room and say, here is our plan, what do you think? Got some feedback, here's our position paper, comment on it. You have a national central bank digital currency being developed. Everywhere in the world, the first person who published, uh, 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 got, it, uh, got us all into this blockchain world, published a white paper, Satoshi. We don't know, of course, you know who he is, but he published a white paper. It was widely critiqued. A lot of technologies then believe, began to accept uh, the, the thesis around this issue of how you solve the, the money, the middle attack, these Byzantine general problems and all of those things. And then we have uh, Bitcoin. Based on that, the blockchain technology itself and the rest emerged. Everybody wants to build anything in blockchain today, publishes a white paper. Because there are theories, mathematical theories and the rest about how this is to be done. We decide to build a central bank digital currency and publishes no white paper. How is the money being minted? How do you prevent a run on the bank if people shift all their money from their bank accounts into the ECD suddenly? Which then means that you move from bank accounts into national um, uh, national treasury. How do, you, how do you solve all of those problems? These are matters that you need to publish a position people on, call a meeting of stakeholders, have deep discussions, invite comments, then go back and republish your second draft. That's how we do it everywhere in the world. It is only in Ghana that we decide that we're going to do these really complex things. Solicit no input. Say that we are the wisest people in the world. We are all philosopher kings because we are political. We are political power. And then when you try to hold them accountable, they say, you know, all of this matter is just uh, a pure grammar and pure talk. No. All right. The issues of how central bank data currencies could impact microfiscal management is widely known in different contexts. What is the Ghanaian context? We need to examine these matters in great depth. Thank you very much. I disagree with that these are matters that you can just wave the sounds about and say we don't need to publish a policy paper and you know we'll just give instructions to, to CEOs. I completely disagree. Okay. And I think it's something that in order for him to build a better relationship with civil society and the rest, he acknowledges the role we play, the role the academic community play, and say, look, we really want to engage, we want these matters to be examined, we'll make data available for your research, etc. That's the kind of thing we want to hear from you. All right. Thank you. Th thank you very I'm much. Sorry for no, no, don't worry about it. We have time for this. I, I will come back to you again for a second. So, Mr. Blue, you've heard the concerns Bright has raised. And I, the other good person I've heard him, for instance, on the e currency last week, I, I got um, an email from a colleague journalist, in, well, two colleague journalists, one from New York, one from Joburg, asking, We've read your Bank of Ghana says they are doing e currency. We have questions. Where do we go? And I was like, well, you have to email the Bank of Ghana for this. But it's like, just that. Mm -hmm. And these are legitimate questions. Nobody undertakes. We just received an announcement. Ghana is going to do this. Accept it. And those are the things that people are really concerned about. Yeah. You well, want to engage. I heard Bright, and, and I think he's also very passionate about his position. <laughs> so, but we have to step back a minute. Okay. In 2003, the government... Well, publish an ICT for development policy. So when he says that there's no documenting policy, there is. In 2017 or 18, um, around that, there was a national conference on ICT organized where we had a lot of debate, conversation around. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure about. Um, whether he was invited to it or not. But I know there was a conference where a lot of people came in there, had a lot of discussion about what are the challenges and the issues, and many of the issues that he was, he's raising were in there. I know that the minister, I mean, it is, it, I'm stating facts, right? 
I know that the Minister of Communication is reviewing this 2003 ICT for Development Policy to issue an upgrade, an update on that. And I know that she's consulting widely to provide a better paper. So Consulting who? Well, I mean, I'll let the minister um, answer that. But okay. I'm just telling you that I, what I know is that she's... she's Consulting widely. Well, I, she is, because I know she's spoken to a few people about it. Now, um, I'm not, now that this is said in terms of, I think Brad made a statement that well, I don't believe in documenting a problem. I don't think we sh I don't think that's what I said. I'm just telling you that the problems that we are talking about here in terms of do doing the Ghana card is not new. We don't have to wait for a paper before we say, now we know what the problem is. The, in 2006, the NIA, the NIA National Identity Authority was established by law. Before law established, before Parliament established any such laws and provide any such guidance, there's a lot of conversation and debate about it and what problem is being uh, is being solved by the NIA. Then beyond that, there was non-operationalization of the card. In 2006, there were multiple attempts to do that. We didn't finish, right? So w w what I'm saying here is that yeah, you can have the concept that let's to have a con uh, discussion about all these problems, but let's take them one by one. I am zero zeroing in on the NIA because that's the easiest one that I can use to make my point here. Mm -hmm. Then we go into, we, in 2017, we come to power and say, well, this has been in the books. The president and the vice president understand that NIA is a key element, the identity card is a key element for transformation of the economy. Let us get it done, right? So. As we speak, you have 15.7 million um, Ghanaians registered. This does not mean that I'm making a statement that we don't need to document uh, <laughs> the problem. It is, I'm just stating, making a statement of fact that this has been the journey around that. Now, um, in terms of roots, um, Brad was talking about it. I have no way of knowing where there's a PK architecture. Um, NITA, by law, is a root, the owner of the PK architecture of the country. They have the architecture. I think Bright can, uh, Bright can reach out to NITA and let, they will, I'm sure they will gladly share what they have. I know for a fact that NIA had to bring its roots um, underneath the NITA's roots in order to ensure that we have one route in Ghana to meet the ICAO requirement and have it speak at the international. So, so this, again, right, this is a statement of fact. This is not back and forth. I think NITA will be glad to provide that information as well. So um, in the, in, uh, he mentioned about the, 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 the issue about people not consulting widely in defining the problems, making uh, data available to uh, civil services. So I, I think there's room for improvement, improvement there. We can um, have that conversation, get the, the sector ministers involved to provide the information that he requires. But it's one thing that we have to understand. The architecture of a solution is a critical document that you don't make it public. It can give you the high level for you to understand mm -hmm. how it works. When you go down, when you go down to the real architecture, because of cyber security, cyber security risks and others, mm. uh, it's, it's not everything that you want to make it public. So the level of discussion varies. I mean, he's an expert. I'm sure he understands what I'm talking about. So I'm not running away from the fact that we need to have a conversation. I'm just, I'm just throwing out a caution that a certain level of the architectural discussion I don't want to, to have because you end up having the, the you're then exposing 
the, 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 the key element of your architecture. We make it subject to cyber security attacks. Mm. You know, so th this is the in terms of his um, point about the digital address, for example. Um, this is I, I don't see any disagreement, and this is a point I, I don't see any disagreement there that we are looking at an addressing system linking to geocode and loading into Google. He would have preferred that we start with Google and say, Google, give me your geocode, then let's label it. Well, we started the label and put it in Google. So, so no, but I think his concerns are with the totality of this and how far reaching they are where you start something and think okay this is what we need to do but perhaps if you consult more and if the implementing agency uh, consults more yes if the implement okay. yeah, by, by, by just using you yeah. by that you get better value for money and you get a far more reaching solution than a solution that in three years you might need to go and pay more money for yes just to expand when okay. perhaps if you had consulted properly, you can do everything for the next 20 or 30 years. And again, like you said, digitalization evolves. Yeah, but you could get 20 or 30 years worth of value now as compared to paying millions of dollars for something that will only last you two or three years and does not fit for purpose. I mean, it's, it's a good way of seeing it, but I don't see where we've done that, where we provide a solution that only lasts two or three years. All the solutions that we are talking about are far-reaching solutions. We are not doing the ID just for two or three years. We are not doing the addressing system for only two or three years. We are not doing the mobile interoperability for only two and three years. And, uh, these are not solutions that we do for only two and three years. It's solutions that we expect for it to be a cornerstone of the economy that should last longer than that. Are, are you yeah. doing it at good value? And Because that is a significant concern. Because if I look at... It looks like you have success stories to tell, but some of the things are quite expensive. Like which one? Which one isn't? The yeah. National Identification Authority, for instance. And, yeah. and if you listen to the description that was given by Bright in terms of how one acquired the card and the, the card. processes that we've gone through. I interviewed yeah. Mr. Atifa two years ago. So it's, you, it's, not, it's not been one of the cleanest well, I mean, it's things a, we have seen. It's a human organization. They no, it's just purely people. executed. Now, let's not say it was. Let's look at the population let's be of frank with ourselves. I'm, I'm it was being, purely executed. I'm being frank. Let's look at the, uh, the population of the country. Roughly 30 million. Adult population above the age of 15. We have a very young population. So if you look at that, we have 15.7 people who have registered on the card. Right? And they only focus on the adult population. Is it, I, I will not call it sloppy. This is like an achievement of getting people. And it's not like, like he, Brad was mentioning, like creating an artificial shot to get people to, to, be, to queue up so that you can go and get money paid and all. This is, that was not what NIA did. But that's what it is. I spoke to uh, Mr. Abudu two weeks ago. Why that they create an artificial uh, Not necessarily, challenge. but why do you have a premium solution that now operates like the, random, the, like the regular solution? Because if I go to the premium solution, I'm paying 50 CDs, I'm still sitting in the sun for four hours. Well, I'm if I, I go to a regular place, I'm still sitting in the sun for four hours. That is not efficient. Okay, so I'll let, uh, I'll let uh, I think you, you're going to have him on the well, line. I'm, already, I'm, I'm saying, I'm saying yes. that to register 15.7 million across the country, these ones were not registered around the, the premium services. Mm. These are people that the NIA went around the country, district by district, getting them registered. Well, not through premium. Mm -hmm. Right. Those that the opportunity was given to them. There are people 
like any service. People want to jump the line, they want to not have time to go, they have to go and get a premium service. And that's a decision that NIA make to make it easier and faster for others that want premium services, like anything. DVLA has it, many organizations have it. You take an airplane, you have first class. These are all different services that people provide. But the they getting the card for Ghanaian was at zero cost to the, to the, to the, to the citizen. Yeah. Right? And to register 15.7 million Ghanaians. It's not a small fit to it's get them. Same. Yeah, it is not to get them to have their fingerprint, their pictures taken. So it, it, we have to appreciate the, the work that NIA did in trying to get these 15.7 million registered. L let me just deal with one quick thing, then go back to uh, Bright, and that's the one that perhaps gained the most headlines: the e-passport. Yes. What is again? A conversation about springing something on Ghanaians, springing something on people without you see where it comes from. It's not okay, so I that's why I was headlines. Let, let, me, let me try to explain to you. Nobody let me try knew. to explain. ICAO is an international civil aviation organization, yeah. They manage the doc, they define the standard in terms of international travel document. So, an ID is required to travel from one airport to another. ECOWAS has a standard as part of the ECOWAS mandate. We have to facilitate free movement of citizens from between countries. ICAO defined that standard. ECOWAS standard is based on ICAO standard. So the Ghana card is built based on that standard, right? So today we don't need to do anything further at this point. Now I'm coming to you now. Now what we have done to say the PKI, the the encryption algorithm, the PKI because the they, they data needs to be uh, protected. Yeah, sure. We have uploaded that PKI into the ICAO database mm -hmm. as part of t making sure our card is, f we can take advantage of all the services that a card provides. So it is not an afterthought, right? You've done up to this point. What you are left now is move your card, your PKI data into the ICAO and make, make sure that citizens that have the card can take advantage of all of these services that the card provides. And that is exactly what, what we did. By getting ICAO to look at our, our PKI infrastructure, making sure it meets international standard PKI infrastructure owned by NITA, an organization mm -hmm. in Ghana, and then looking at that and making sure it is done properly and loaded into the ICAO. So by doing that, we made the ICAO standard in terms of uh, authorizing a document to, uh, to be allowed to use that document at international airports. Mm -hmm. So it is not setting up to say we are going to go and make sure Ghana card becomes the international international the, the travel. It's not, it's not replacing your passport. No, it is that you are say, saying that you've done four out of five. The last one would allow your citizens additional services around the world. Let's just load it in there, and we did that. And by submitting ourselves to international scrutiny, we passed mm -hmm. it, and then we we got accepted. But you, do you accept that if? we knew what the long-term plan was, there wouldn't be the confusion where we've had this week where people are calling and asking, so does that mean I can show up at Schiphol Airport with my Ghana card without my passport and be allowed into uh, Holland? No, but the vice president never said that. Well, that's the understanding people had. No, that the vice president says that now <laughs> we can travel with our Ghana card. Into Ghana. Yes. Right. We have to go back and read or list or we play the video again what he said. Well, I understand you, but you right. know... You, but government, government communication needs to be done at a certain level. But okay. Let me just take a quick break. When yeah. I come back, we will try and settle this matter. Let me get you right back. Okay.
final hurdle. Uh, let me go back to Bright quickly and then we will wrap this up. Mr. Blair has had one turn so I'm doing a Bright turn as well. But are you with us? Did I am. Thank you for um, the opportunity. Yes. So, yes, please go ahead. Yes, but so basically I'm looking at this. Mr. Mr. Blair seems to think that there is room for engagement and that seems to be a significant concern for you. The lack of information, the lack of forthrightness when it comes to these projects and the general lack of value going forward what is your expectation of this digitization agenda how does it improve so that we get value for money and long-term success from it yeah it's very good the way you frame it um i mean first of all there, there, uh, we need to be very clear we appreciate the fact that because of the vice president to make digitization and technology an important matter in ghana prime time shows like yours are discussing it is at the top of the national agenda that is certainly phenomenal and we're happy we're just not happy with the way that they're doing this thing from an accountability point of view. There are three levels of accountability in any serious democracy. You have your statutory institutions like Parliament, Auditor General, and the rest of it, who ought to have access to all the information that is necessary in order to come to a conclusion that the government actors are acting in our best national interest. Then you have the civil society movement, which are very critical because they are non-governmental, but at the same time, they have the resource and the capacity to mobilize in order to ensure that if the statutory authorities are not capable due to political factors of putting people like Mr. Blair on the spot, we can. Then you have the research and academic community who need extensive information in order to tell all of us whether this stuff that he's talking about is actually making a difference in people's lives. It is not for Mr. Blair to tell us that Ghanaians are benefiting. Why? Because he will always say that, right? It is in his political interest to say that. It is the interest, the people that we should trust the most are those that can do the long-term longitudinal studies, the randomized controlled trials, etc., to say that indeed National ID card has made an improvement in banking, made an improvement here. That is a matter for the research and academic community. I have talked to a lot of academics in this country, and they don't have the necessary information, the data, the picabies for even to attempt to get involved in these discussions and to attempt to be able to influence these discussions. And then the civil society have the same view. So that's a challenge. The second important point to make is that interests are important contractors vendors companies that are building these things are being for money 
it is not in their interest to make this the most value for money operation or to care about the long-term success, etc. Of course, their reputation is used here and there. But for the most part, they want to make money. There has to be other people that are involved, thinking about the national interest at every level of conversation. That's why we are saying, not for a general ICT policy, but for these specific activities, a national ID card, etc., etc. Publish your position paper on it. Say, here is the strategy. Here is why we are doing this. Here are the elements of implementation. And get comments, official comments. Have stakeholder consultations. I remember when I first started in, out in this game of um, uh, um, civic activism, and where things like spe spe single spine and the rest were being discussed. There were several rounds of consultation. A lot of papers were published. All of us, Atimani and the others, made inputs. Today, you have very little to go on. So that's a big problem. The other issue that we also have is the fact that everything has become peer. That's a big challenge. So we, for instance, at the money have had to abandon projects because you can't get fair information because every time you ask for information, the intention is to try and manipulate and to massage. Look at the rural business centers and the community information centers. We spend millions of dollars on this stuff. You go, we, we send people around. Um, to some of these locations where we are supposed to have RBCs and CICs, and we discovered ridiculous underutilization. Two percent in some cases. Some of these places, people are not even showing up. Why are we spending millions of dollars putting solar plants, uh, panels on roofs, putting in devices, and the rest claiming it's for a community, and we are not integrating it into the district assembly processes that will ensure that local services are delivered through these community information centers and rural business centers? We built about 200 rural business centers at one point. That was the last time. Um, any of these um, um, locations was used to deliver local government services when we continue to talk about lack of local capacity at the local level. And there are academics at Ligon Tech and the rest who are looking for information to be able to do uh, evaluations of these studies and share them publicly so we can all benefit. Let me give you some specific examples. Yes. Take the, the issue that most of us have noticed and we laugh, off, we laugh it off and never actually delve into why it is the way it is. The fact that most uh, government officials prefer to use um, generic email services, commercial email services like Gmail, Yahoo, Hotmail, and the rest. And they don't prefer to use um, the Ghana national um, e-services domain, address domain, and the like. Why, why, why is that the case? It, the, the, the reason has been very simple. We don't pay the vendors. I remember one time we wanted to publish about this matters. We couldn't get the right information at some point, so we stopped about it. But there were vendors being owed millions of dollars providing email services to Ghana and we are cutting off services. And because the service is not reliable, ministers stop using them. They use their private Gmail account. All the information is stored in Google service. When you have to do an investigation as a special prosecutor or whoever it is that you are, you can find information. These are important national matters. And so I worry when Mr. Blay is waving his hands early and doesn't appear to appreciate the seriousness of what we are talking about. A national email system should work perfectly. Could, together with the document architecture, the cloud solutions where we are keeping information, it should work seamlessly. And why have we had a situation for over 20 years? We have one e-services program, uh, get a vendor, pay them some little money, stop paying them, the thing becomes a, a mess over and over and over again. Take this um, card, Ghana card matter for travel you are talking about. There is a public trust gateway that ICAO manages. It's got nothing to do with your national smart card project. However, you design your PK in your country, you publish your public keys through this gateway so other member governments can know that this document was issued by you. That's all it is. Yeah. The vice president decides from because of PR matter to make this a Ghana card success. I can't even fathom that. What is that going to do with a Ghana smart card? If we didn't have a Ghana smart card, we could still publish our public keys, 
so that other um, governments around the world will know that this passport is coming from Ghana or this other document is coming from Ghana. Why does the vice president spend his time rather addressing the issue of too many foreigners getting access, uh, hold of too many of our cars due to the way we've designed the workflow, the way that we've designed the, the investigation methods for potential fraud, the whistleblower mechanisms that exist, etc. Those are big, challenging, deep problems that we need to spend resources on. To make this a PR matter that the Ghana car has enabled Ghana to be able to be ICAR compliant is completely mind-boggling. Our national passport ought to have a smart card in it, a chip in it, with our public keys, so that when you get to Belgium and there are issues and they want to do further investigation and the rest, they give credit to your national uh, passport because they can query the public keys. That's all we need to do. If we have a smart card that is for local travel and the rest of it, and that means that it's additional convenience, that's fine. But it's got nothing to do with an ICAO compliance matter. So why is it a big PR benefit for the government? I'm not saying that the government shouldn't do PR. I mean, they're in the office to, 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 to get re-elected. I get that. I completely appreciate that. I'm sympathetic. But it's not everything that must be a PR matter. And it's not everything that ought to be an accountability matter that ought to be dismissed. You know, because we want everything that the government does to be seen in the light of being excellent. It's not, it's not possible. There has to be an admission that, as he himself has admitted, as a human institution, there will be problems. Occasionally, those problems require that even sometimes when they themselves are in government and they can't speak, people like us outside will be speaking. Because there are always interests that clash. And you need to have a system in place that establishes very clearly, very clearly, that there's accountability of, in public office. And I think that there is this fundamental misunderstanding of that in some of the functionaries of government. They just don't get it. It's a democracy. Everything they do have to be carried. So when you talk to him about this PKD matter, well, we, have, we have great concerns. And some of these matters, Imani doesn't publish because it's not all the things that we come out to, to, to fight about. We have great concerns about the architecture precisely because there are several matters involved. We know that when we were going to Ikaro, crypto vision was all over the place, etc., etc. But the point is that the reason we bring this up is not for you to say that we should go to NITA. It's not for us to go to NITA. It's for NITA to come to the public. We are not selling policy to, uh, to, the, public, uh, to, the, to the people of Ghana. It is the government that is selling policy to the people of Ghana. It is the government that is trying to convince people that it's doing the right thing. It is the government that is okay. trying to convince people that it's acting in the national interest and in the public interest. It is for the government to reach out to civil society. Here is a document. What do you think? Uh, if we don't have a comment at that point, that's fine. You can call a, a national stakeholders forum and All right. evaluate Thank those. you very much, uh, 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 Brian.